Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Men in Black series. We are the best kept secret in the universe. We work for a highly funded yet unofficial government agency. Our mission is to monitor extraterrestrial activity on Earth. We are your best. Last. And only line of defense. You're under arrest for violating sections 4153 of the Tycho Treaty. Step away from your busted ass vehicle and put your hands on your head. You know how to use these things? No idea whatsoever. Men in black. Protecting the Earth from the scum of the universe. On this show, we will be covering the first three Men in Black films, starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And we shall begin with Men in Black 1997. Somewhere in the middle of Will Smith's second period. Mm -hmm. So if uh, Will Smith's first was when he was Fresh Prince of Bel-Air... And uh, his singing career was transitioning from with Jazzy Jeff to the solo stuff. Uh, he did uh, Made in America and Six Degrees of Separation and was not really widely known as a cinema actor, but was becoming known in TV and, and hip hop. And then his second phase, which started in 1995, was Bad Boys, where it was like, this guy's a fucking movie star. Then Independence Day and Men in Black. Men in Black being the one where he's like, the lead in a family-friendly movie, and they are making full use of his charisma. Shortly after this was followed by Enemy of the State and Wild Wild West. Fucking terrible. Like, how can you follow this with that? Well, I guess talk about that later in some capacity. Uh, Legend of Bagger Vance, which I've never seen, and the second period culminates in Ali in 2001, which I actually consider to be the pinnacle of Will Smith's acting career. Mm. Like, this was when he was hot, was amazing people with, with uh, um, how fresh and, new, fresh and new he felt as a screen presence. Mm-hmm. His third period and fourth period are much more similar and much more muddled. Uh, 2002 to 2008, there was a four-year hiatus between 8 and 12 where he did nothing. He started off with Men in Black 2 and Bad Boys 2 and iRobot and Shark Tale. So it was his shit period. Uh, Then there was an uptick with Hitch. And uh, you haven't seen Pursuit of Happiness yet, have you? I haven't, no. Okay, I've been saving that for us to watch at some point. It's uh, it's quite hard going, but it, he's, he's good in it. Um, there's I Am Legend, again, hard going. So he's taking these challenging roles. Hancock, which we like, but no one else does. Yeah, it still baffles me a little bit. And Seven Pounds, which is... Uh, like this is one of the films where he he does a, what feels must have felt very worthy in the script stage, but comes out and people go, Ugh, "This is drippy shit," and uh, or, or ponderous or portentous. And there's a couple more of those coming. That was his third period. I mean, you could technically munge that in with his fourth period as well, because you got from 2012 to 2019. I think the main reason I divide them is because of that hiatus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Men in Black Three, After Earth. <sighs> 
Focus. That's the one with Margot Robbie where they're both confidence tricksters. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I like. Yep, yeah, liked. Uh, Concussion, which is uh, he was spoiling for an Oscar with this one. It's about uh, the, Amer- the football industry and its lack of accountability for player injuries. Mm. Uh, Suicide Squad. This is where he had said no to Independence Day resurgence, possibly because just looking at Men in Black 2, Bad Boys 2, he'd thought to himself, maybe fewer sequels and more, you know, original new properties. Fewer sequels, more Margot Robbie. Yeah, good point, yeah. Um, So Suicide Squad, Collateral Beauty. (laughs) It's a really tricky one. I actually would put it in the same bracket as Serenity in... The Bad Which, Serenity. The Bad Serenity. I really liked the concept. Mm-hmm. I was really dissatisfied with the execution. Speaking of which, Bright. Cops working with orcs. I mean, it's a great concept. It is one of the worst applications of a great concept I've ever seen. Uh, Lindsay Ellis did a fantastic video on Bright and why it's terrible world building. But I will say simply that as we watched it, he called an orc Shrek. And I said, and I believe We Hate Movies said this as well, they have Shrek in this universe? It just felt so sloppy. And then most recently Aladdin, which we really liked and there have been very, very sniffy reviews of. Yeah. But it's probably going to make all the monies because it's got a very appealing uh, feel to it. And again, he's great in it. So he hasn't had a trajectory which goes up and then down. It's a very spiky mountain range of mm. like, that film was great, that was terrible. That film was really pretty good, that was terrible. Yeah. Like, he's not averse to doing terrible films. I would be interested to see how those peaks and trajectories match with life events for him. Yeah. Like, who's contributing to the decisions that are being made for him? At what point did he meet Jada Pinkett? At what point did he join Scientology? That kind of thing. He and Jada Pinkett Smith are avowed not Scientologists. They just dig some of the aspects of the teachings of Dianetics. Which would be why After Earth feels like a screed on fear not being real and only existing in your mind. So Men in Black 1. This first movie feels like a phase one Marvel, wouldn't you say? Yes, it is actually a Marvel. I know, it's a a Marvel (laughs) I saw it on the credits and thought, is this part of the MCU? Yeah. For background, the Men in Black comic series was introduced under the Malibu label, written by Lowell Cunningham. And it was a mini-series of three issues in 1990, followed by another three issues called Men in Black Book 2 in 1991. Malibu was then bought by Marvel Comics in 1994, making this a Marvel property in 1997. But there were no major comic runs from Marvel before the film came out, just a bunch of one-shots and film tie-ins. So yeah, it's not part of the MCU, but it is a Marvel property, but kind of an offshoot. No one ever talks about it or ever mentions the comic. Everyone knows the films. So what characteristics does the first Men in Black film share with several of Marvel's Phase 1s and a couple of their Phase 2 and 3s that feel like Phase 1s? So yeah, it's bright and colourful. It's not embarrassed about its material. True, yep. And the, the concept of it within the world of the movie is taken, not like deadly seriously in the grim and gritty sense, but it is entirely there. There's no sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, question marks over what's actually going on. The world building is great. There's so much background stuff that contributes to the feeling of it being integrated with New York City. The world building is very efficient. 
in that a couple of sentences here and there and just showing you a few things makes you feel like there's a lot bigger stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the variety of characters and the character development, like the world building, is very efficient. You get uh, characterising dialogue rather than any nonsensical exposition to let you know who is who. Mm-hmm. Even the more minor characters, I think, are set up pretty well. Like, you could take most of the background characters, put them in a story of their own, and it wouldn't take too much to evolve them into a full storyline. They display a potential for being well-rounded. Yeah, they make them... They they feel real again in the in the context of the movie i'll talk about that a bit more when we get to linda fiorentina the things i had written down were that the the, this is where the world building comes in handy that it's got a huge world but it's got personal focus yes it's almost throwaway that the stakes are so huge and they make a, a, a deal of the fact that this happens all the time in the movie the the way they get by day to day is to keep it on a, a job level. Absolutely. And they actually almost explicitly make it so that part of the reason for that is that the these huge world-destroying stakes mm. exist in a teeny, teeny bitty little sp- living, living space. <laughs> and that the only way that you can do a job day-to-day that involves such huge concepts, Cthulhu-level concepts occasionally, that the human mind would massively struggle to grasp. Well, the presence of squids is a bit of a giveaway. But but that's the thing. If you're going to... So fun Lovecraftian, you mean Doctor Strange? Yes, indeed. If you're going to deal with cosmic-level shit, you have to be able to bring it down to rules and regulations. That's how humans cope. Hmm. And I love that notion of... The infinite reduced to bureaucracy. I find it both funny and comforting. Pixar do that, and obviously then you get the Disney link, and thus that's how Marvel have been sort of shaped around that as well. They absolutely do. Neil Gaiman does that well as well. And Terry Pratchett too. They should do something together. I assume this is about Armageddon. Yes. It's it's funny and fast-paced. As you said, there's likeable heroes and also odd couples. So they get J and K put together. They have clashing personalities, which makes for great on-screen chemistry. Mm-hmm. This especially allows both the young and the old to enjoy the film together. It's not so much that J and K are opposites, so much as that J's approach to life is a more fluid version of what K's has become through being honed by experience. There's action and then there's pathos, but they don't dwell too much on it, which is why possibly it's more like a phase one, where they're like, okay, so here's the sort of the sadder bit, but we're going to move on to a big action sequence at the end. That's handled extremely well, actually. And I think a big part of that is that the vast majority of the pathos is delivered by Tommy Lee Jones. Mm -hmm. And it's done with this stoic, granite-faced delivery that means that you get the real heartstring tugging with not even a hint of melodrama Mm. because his delivery is so deadpan. Leaves you excited for more. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, it even has a Guardian of the Galaxy and a Flurkin. And uh, it feels like S.H.I.E.L.D. begins as well. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Which is notable because 
usually this kind of government agent, and especially in like Michael Bay's Transformers uh, films and in The Matrix, they're the enemy, they're the antagonist, they're the ones like Kent Mansley and the Iron Giant, just like mm-hmm. interfering, trying to forcibly bring everything into line in a way that's portrayed as very negative. Uh, the guys trying to find E.T., they're the ones you've got to fear and you don't talk to the government and they're trying to screw you over and, and they will come in, take control and take what they want for themselves. Years of research gone it even took my ipod everything with an alien in it they're trying to get it away from the government agents who want to grab it and autopsy it this is one of the first few times when you're actually with the government agents mm. which is kind of like shield and also kind of like new century yes i didn't realize that yeah. until i was watching it. i was like oh definite line of this is the one that there. says these government agents are trying their absolute best to prevent Everything from descending into chaos. Yes, they are a government agency, but they are also separate from and aside from. Hence, one of the best lines, you're everything we've come to expect from years of government training. Yeah. Exactly not what we're looking for. (laughs) And the thing about we don't report to a government agency because they ask too many questions. It's also weirdly progressive, especially for something in the 90s. It begins sympathetic to Mexicans emigrating over the border. Yeah, specifically... And while there's a uh, a woman in it who gets kidnapped, she's annoyed at that fact mm. and is brassy enough to be able to handle herself and ends up as an agent by the end in a way that probably should have been explored in 2 and 3. Yes, I agree completely. I, I will say this. I absolutely love her character. It's a very small role, and that is a crying shame, but I love her delivery. The way she's painted is as somebody who is trained and intelligent and independent and she feels extremely real and as you say for 90s sci-fi she is a great example of an actual rounded inspiring has potential depths female character Mm. the fact that laurel is an expert on dead bodies also gives you an x-files angle which obviously men in black riffed on heavily but of course took a different angle on the x-files is about two government agents trying to uncover mysterious government organizations hiding aliens from the general population Men in Black is about those guys. I did a full laparotomy. I started with the lesser curvature of the stomach, but we could start with the gastroesophageal junction, whichever you prefer. Uh, let's start where, wherever you started at. Okie dokie. Dive right in. I'm sure he won't mind. Mm. Mm. You have really pretty eyes. Thank you. Okay, you feel that? Where the mm. pyloric junction would be? Push it aside. You notice anything strange? Stomach, liver, lungs? Nope, all fine. Doctor, they're all missing. Of course. Well, you know, that's obviously the first thing I noticed. Well, what, what I was pointing out is the, is the fact that there are no um, pieces of them left. Yeah, you know, so they're intact. Wherever they are whole somewhere that we can be sure of so so yeah ultimately because agent k at the beginning has the grander perspective he's looking at this small town border patrol sheriff uh, and, and his team and saying oh, thank you very much for protecting us from these dangerous aliens and it's heavy sarcasm he's, he's pointing to these people who are coming to look for work and in the meantime k and his partner are dealing with actual dangerous aliens on a daily basis yeah and dealing with equally harmless, very human aliens just trying to go about their day. Men in Black encompasses the aliens' entry into our system of living, and the agents are responsible for facilitating 
a smooth state of play for everyone that won't upset things. It places cooperation and organisation over knee-jerk fear and hostility. It's not a case of all interstellar aliens are dangerous. He is incredibly sympathetic towards, for example, Reggie. But he's sympathetic to Mikey. He isn't immediately like sticking his gun in Mikey's face and saying, you're, you're coming with me. This is not the alien equivalent of ICE. No. This is called a neuralizer. It's a gift from some friends from out of town. This red eye here will isolate the electronic impulses in your brains, and more specifically the ones for memory. What in the hell is going on? Excellent question. And the answer you're looking for lies right here. I'm serious, fellas. You're lucky to be alive after a blast like that. What blast? Underground gas main, genius. You fellas need to exercise a lot more caution before discharging your firearms, I'll tell you that right now. Especially you. So Jones, notably here, looks young and handsome, and he's just engaged enough in the role. As in, he's not got to that phase where he's bored and incredulous in that kind of, why am I even here? Oh yeah, I'm getting paid. Which he does a lot in Batman Forever that happened just a few years beforehand, Mm. where Jim Carrey's farting about on screen and, you know, groin pumping, and he's got to share the damn set with him. And he's like, God damn it, why am I here? Oh yeah, getting paid. Uh, but, But here he's, his cool demeanor is entirely complimentary to the proceedings because he represents the MIB. Mm. And you get a uh, foreshadowing or fore-echoing of uh, Kay's own feelings uh, when D effectively does his little retirement speech. It made me wonder when I first watched it whether that, you know, the beautiful aren't they speech is something that's kind of encoded amongst the uh, agents where if you say that to your partner, it means you're going to have to neuralize me, I'm done. Mm, maybe. Because that's what he says at the end to Jay. Yeah. But obviously Jay doesn't know that hasn't been around long enough to get that but he he still goes through that ritual anyway and it actually doesn't matter whether that is an encoded ritual or it is just something that he remembers d saying and uh agrees with yeah and it it's that rings very true for me because there's an element of that sentiment i think amongst people who work for the emergency services Anything where you're involved in behind-the-scenes stuff that the everyday person just does not have to think about. Mm. And you, in your role, can't escape it. But if you take the border guards and Edgar as the primary examples of hostile, small-minded men who present a constant threat to harmony... That's Edgar before there's a cockroach living inside his skin. But the cockroach is kind of the same as well. And these hostile redneck idiots are set against the efficient parental men in black. They're not so much superheroes as superegos, the ones who know what's best for all of us. And a repeating motif throughout the film, uh, you can't tell these people what's actually going on. Mm. It's, it, it, things will get far worse and far harder to control if they do know about it. Yeah. And they somehow steer clear of this coming off as overwhelmingly patronising by drawing the audience in, in a way that effectively appoints every member watching as an honorary MIB. Yeah, and I think how they get away with that and make it feel like it's okay for them to be doing this is that fantastic line, a person is smart. All right, kid, here's the deal. At any given time, there are around 1,500 aliens on the planet, most of them right here in Manhattan. 
And most of them are decent enough. They're just trying to make a living. Cab drivers. Well, not as many as you'd think. Humans, for the most part, don't have a clue. They don't want one or need one either. They're happy. They think they have a good bead on things. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. The person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. What's the catch? The catch? The catch is you will sever every human contact. Nobody will ever know you exist anywhere. Ever. I'll give you the sunrise to think it over. Hey, is it worth it? Oh, yeah, it's worth it. If you're strong enough. When you can get people individually and explain to them on a one-to-one -one basis what's going on, yes, they will probably understand it. But you can't manage group dynamics that way, especially not large group dynamics. I find it really interesting that it's set in New York specifically because it kind of emphasises that reputation that New York has of being a city full of individuals rather than a mob, a, a mass group of people who live in a particular area. I especially like the uh, fact that uh, the way Kay explains it to Jay is yeah, as what part the earth plays in all this is like Casablanca with no Nazis, an incredibly elegant single line that doesn't patronise the audience at all. You either get that or you don't and just move on and just get everything contextually. That's mm -hmm. fine, especially if you're kids and you've never seen Casablanca. It treats people with respect in a way that the second movie definitely doesn't. Yeah. And Jay's outfits, by the way, are out of control. He seems to be wearing half a shell suit for most of the first act that of this movie. That jacket, oh my God. Will Smith is a tall guy. Yeah. What size is that red jacket? He's dressed like a Belisha beacon. He is a bit, yeah. He's, <laughs> he's, this actually does tie in with the, that recurring theme of him being called a kid. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, he the does try to dress like a child. The he's wearing makes him look like a gangly teenager who isn't sure what size he's going to be by the end mm. of the day yet. I suppose that that nets the youngest uh, elements of the audience who feel like, you know, mm. the way that Luke Skywalker behaved in a kind of boyish fashion, that you kind of get away with the fact that he's a lot older than the target audience for Star Wars. Absolutely, yeah. I, I actually made a little tally or a little list of some of the things that he gets called. And this is disregarding the things he specifically tells... Okay, uh, not, to, not to call him. Uh, but he gets Slick, Kid, Junior, Tiger, Slugger, and I guess you weren't even alive in 68. Nice. <laughs> now, as we will see later, Jay was alive in 68, and Kay knows this, but the way he delivers this line retroactively now feels like he was trying to cover his ass and go, oh, not that I know how old you are. And for the record, what that line might originally have been referring to is the fact that Will Smith was born in September 1968, making him technically a little bit younger than the character of Jay. You're only here because you're the best of the best. Marines, Air Force, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, NYPD. And we're looking for one of you. Just one. What will follow is a series of simple tests for motor skills, 
Concentration, stamina. I see we have a question. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, maybe you already answered this, but uh, why exactly are we here? Son? Second Lieutenant Jake Jensen, West Point, graduate with honors. We're here because you're looking for the best of the best of the best, sir. <laughs> What's so funny, Edwards? Your boy Captain America over here. The best of the best of the best, sir. <laughs> with honors. You know, he's just really excited and he has no clue why we're here. <laughs> that's just, that's very funny to me. <laughs> Y'all ain't laughing though. But what Jay has that uh, is extremely appealing for the audience is when he's offset against the Army, Air, Navy, Air Force and Marines and all of these stiff guys that uh, are best of the best of the best. Um, with honours. With honours. Uh, <laughs> he transgresses various unspoken rules of social etiquette, namely dragging that heavy-ass table all the way across the room in order to successfully complete the written test. He's selected because he's the kind of person who digs deeper. He has an inquiring mind and he questions what he sees. And again, that comes back to that idea that they want individuals. They want people who will mm. look at this clearly, not how the, their group think has told them to look at it. Now, on a superficial level, it seems like they're looking for mavericks who buck the system and don't do as they're told. But that's more uh, just a a side effect of the kind of mind they're looking for. Absolutely. They're going to probably not just conform, which is always baffling whenever you watch everything else to do with Men in Black and look in the background. All the other MIBs aren't like that. They're all just best of the best of the best, with honours. But it's entirely possible that they were that way when they started and the slick junior slugger tiger treatment beat it out of them brings them in line that the whole you don't want them to be in line the the maverick character is dangerous yeah and they can't afford that so they need somebody who can think outside the box and then make sure everything else stays in the box so really what they want is a bunch of mavericks that they teach to be like super focused, yeah. kind of like uh, the pretense in Kingsman, Secret Service. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Get your maverick and then make absolutely sure that he understands that you're not just going to let him hmm. do his own thing. The, the, the premise of this film has been reused time and time again since this film came out. Hmm. There are definitely elements of Men in Black in Wild Wild West, most definitely Hellboy, The Incredibles, only rather than trying to suppress aliens from society, the Men in Black in The Incredibles are trying to suppress superheroes. They even have a memory-destroying neuralizer. Green Lantern, obviously the comic had been running for decades already, but they set up the film like a limp-ass Men in Black. R.I.P.D. Again, poor Ryan Reynolds. Again, this comes from a comic, much like the BPRD. And these guys are effectively policing the afterlife. And a young hotshot police officer gets paired up with a crazy old cowboy played by Jeff Bridges. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and just S.H.I.E.L.D. in general in the MCU. Fast and Furious 7, Kurt Russell is basically Tommy Lee Jones here. Kingsman the Secret Service. Monarch in the Godzilla Monsterverse. Prodigium in The Mummy 2017, the one that was supposed to kick off Universal's Dark Universe. Monarch obviously collects data on giant kaiju, prodigium on the creature from the Black Lagoon and the Wolfman, Macusa in Fantastic Beasts, and actually in Harry Potter the whole Ministry of Magic had an MIB flavour to it. I would argue the loopy assassin underworld in Wanted and 
John Wick. There's a few bits here and there in Shane Black's The Predator, Michael Bay's Transformers, and to better effect in Bumblebee. That would be Sector 7, a shadowy government organization who suppressed information on Transformers. And in terms of Jay's recruitment, this one will blow your mind, Into the Spider-Verse. Also in the uh, MIB uh, headquarters, you get to meet the stick and set guys. And I'm also going to invoke Frank the dog that you meet later on. If these were just relegated to this one film, it would be like a joyful little moment. But because they get spammed mm -hmm. in the later films. Yep. And they go, oh, these are the things that everybody loved about this movie. No, these are not the things yeah. that everybody loved about this movie. Because they get spammed later on, they, they are wretched when they appear here. You're just like, oh, get off the screen. We, you know, we had too much of you. Uh, so, that, and that's a damn shame. That's that's later films making the earlier film a bit worse. Yeah. Now, regarding that speech about imagine what you'll know tomorrow which is a very elegant model for the expansion of our understanding as a species. You could draw a parallel between this Lovecraftian infinite knowledge and the age of information. As in, in the late 90s, prior to the internet being prevalent, people had this much scope in their lives. I'm putting my hands fairly close together. And then since the internet, these past 22 years since Men in Black, mm. it's just expanded and expanded and expanded. And a lot of us don't know what to do with all this. Yeah, it, it has the capacity for what we can know has leapt in the last few years mm. and our brains have not kept up. And for a lot of people that has been overwhelming. And their response to that has been fear and anger and lashing out. Hmm. You're absolutely right about the the expansion of the, the scientific discovery concept and that potted version of it, which is beautiful. It kind of connects back to what you said about it being progressive. Hmm. Progressive in a very understated way in it's a way that liberal, says it's not liberal but it is very no, kind of calmly moving forward just to keep things together in the sense of let's not be shitty to anybody today because you don't know who they're going to be to mm. you tomorrow they might be important further down the line hmm. which is a great philosophy to go through life with yeah absolutely when we do actually make it into outer space let's not go tearing out there with missiles because we don't know what we're going to Meet. So you mean the polar opposite of the last frames of Independence Day Resurgence when Mr. Data grabs a space gun and says, let's kick some alien ass. Absolutely. Ugh. Pish. That film. And you were right, Will Smith, not to be a part of that. Indeed. Uh, the bit where Tommy Lee Jones uh, K picks up a little tiny little CD thing and says, these are going to have to replace CDs. So I guess I'm going to have to buy the White Album again. Mm. Uh, is that the disc part of a hard drive for an iPod? Because if it is, he's absolutely right. He totally is. Another element that's progressive question mark is that Men in Black, the first film, doesn't seem to see colour when it comes to Will Smith. It never references the fact that he's African-American. There's two bits that are conjoined where uh, it becomes 
the tiniest element of an issue. When they go to meet Edgar's wife, Kay introduces himself as Agent Mannheim, and this is my partner, Agent Black. Jay doesn't say anything, but he goes, mm, like, mm. There's a very slight eyebrow, eyebrow raise. raise. Then when they meet Linda Fiorentino, he says, I'm Agent Mannheim, this is Agent White. And again, Jay looks at him in a kind of, oh, so it's Agent White now. Well, that, no, that's <laughs> the point. There doesn't need to be any kind of explanatory line in between. That is a call and response. Yes. Yeah. But that's very subtle. Yeah. There's one other moment, and that's when Jay says to the bug... Edgar. Edgar, you all look the same to me. Hmm. Not being able to see colour isn't necessarily progressive. It's just better than being straight-up maliciously racist. Yes. Or even what you believe to be comically racist. Yeah. I made note of the uh, people who are supposed to be aliens living among us, uh, the famous people on the uh, screen. They include Steven Spielberg... Uh, motivational speaker Tony Robbins, Barry and Chloe Sonnenfeld, the director and his daughter, Newt Gingrich, the 50th Speaker of the United States House of Representatives from 95 to 99, Sylvester Stallone, Al Roker, George Lucas, of course, Isaac Mizrahi, Danny DeVito, and Dion Warwick. Now, I've got another list here. There is repeated riffing on the small and unassuming and boring thing not being, as it seems, and actually being of a level of exoticness or complexity or massiveness or hugeness and importance that people wouldn't expect. Can you, like, how many of those can you uh, think of that were in the movie? Here is a thing. It looks boring. Oh, turned out to be not boring. We can start with, say, Mikey at the beginning. Mm. The This is importance hiding in plain sight, which is why Jay's inquiring mind is actually really useful. The pawn shop. The cat collar tag. Yep, Orion's belt. Mm -hmm. I love how there's a double one in that Edgar steals the diamonds from the table after he kills those two aliens, thinking that's the galaxy, smashes apart the container, and just leaves diamonds all over the floor of his van because those things that are very important to a lot of people are entirely inconsequential in the long run. They're even billed as a toy. I got you some diamonds for your children. The body which is the... Royal family members' transport. Yep, driven by a tiny alien. Yep. Correct. Tiffany in the shooting range. Yep. That's, uh, the, that, that's the thing that shows that Jay will be looking out for this sort of thing. Yeah. May I ask why you felt little Tiffany deserved to die? Well, she was the only one that actually seemed dangerous at the time, sir. How'd you come to that conclusion? Well, first I was going to pop this guy hanging from the street light, and then I realized, you know, he's just working out. And how would I feel somebody come running in a gym, bust me in my ass while I'm on a treadmill? Then I saw this uh, snarling beast guy, and I noticed he had a tissue in his hand. I realized, you know, he's not snarling. He's sneezing. You know, ain't no real threat there. Then I saw a little Tiffany. I'm thinking, you know, eight-year-old white girl, middle of the ghetto, bunch of monsters, this time of night with quantum physics books. She's about to start some shit, Zed. She's about eight years old. Those books are way too advanced for her. If you ask me, i say she's up to something. And to be honest, I'd appreciate it if you eased up off my back about it. Or do I owe her an apology? Uh, there's also obviously the Ford with the um, little red button that mm. turns into a jet-propelled, gravity-defying Ford. The cephalopoid that Jay chases down at the beginning with the two sets of eyelids. Uh, Reg's expectant wife. Clearly, if that thing came out of her, she's not just a human. Well, one presumes neither is Reggie. Yeah. 
Jay's noisy cricket that he gets handed, it turns out to be of obscene, unspeakable, beyond magnum level power. Mm-hmm. Uh, the World's Fair Towers, which uh, turn out to be flying saucers. And at the very, very end, it turns out that our own solar system is in a marble. Mm-hmm. This ties in with the long-standing idea that the Earth is like a small blue marble if you pull away from it enough to get that level of perspective. And at the end, an alien plays marbles with our galaxy, which is either an entirely maddening or weirdly comforting thought. Speaking of small, seemingly insignificant things that everybody overlooks... David Cross from Arrested Development is in this movie very, very briefly. Entirely wasted, of course, but somehow way better than his appearance in Men in Black 2, which is cringe-inducing. Talk about that in a bit. It's a bit where Egger says to him uh, that he's uh, trying to get a cat. It means worlds to me, which is a neat bit of scripting. The script for this is actually really tight. I expect, like, there's so many little lines that just get past you, and, and you're like, oh, hang on, what did you just say there? And the, the other little bits which aren't even seemingly in the script. Okay, look, check it out, man. When do I get my own flashy little memory messer upper thing? When you grow up. Mm, okay. And Jay goes, right, right, and scratches his head with his middle finger, effectively flipping him the rod. Mm. Kind of like a child's, kind of proving his point, but at the same time, it shows Jay's defiance. And once again, with when you grow up, we have a line that takes on huge amounts of import once you've seen Men in Black 3. Unintentional first time round, they made it better. Screenplay by one person, Ed Solomon. Story also by Ed Solomon. That speaks highly of the fact that this person can just focus on getting one thing done. Also wrote and played the stupid waiter in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. As in the Ziggy Piggy, that guy. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, he wrote that as well. Whoa, he wrote the Super Mario Brothers film and then did nothing for four years until Men in Black. Mm. And he uh, did the screenplay for Now You See Me Too and a whole bunch of films between, oh, uncredited revision on X-Men written originally by David Hayter. Mm. But uh, What Planet Are You From with Gary Shandling? So like, since Men in Black, he's done loads of things that we haven't really heard of and then he's apparently writing Bill and Ted Face the Music. So they're getting back the original writer of Bill and... Honestly, I think we need to just put our hands together for Ed Solomon for giving us Bill and Ted. Be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes! I found Jay very appealing and uh, human and uh, there's little bits where he tries to help Edgar's wife to resituate herself and um, he doesn't want to just be cold and have her memories flashed away and just have her sent on her way bewildered. He's trying to set up a nice memory for her. That's a appealing characteristic for mm-hmm. a character. They're that level of um, considerate. Yes. There was no alien. Flash of light you saw in the sky was not a UFO. Swamp gas from a weather balloon was trapped in a thermal pocket and refracted the light from Venus. Well, wait, wait a minute. So you just flash that thing, it erases her memory, and you, you just make up a new one? A standard issue neuralizer. And that weak-ass story is the best you can come up with. All right. On a more personal note, Beatrice, Edgar ran off with an old girlfriend. You're going to go stay with your mom a couple of nights, you're going to get over it and decide you're better off. Well, yeah, you know, because he, he never appreciated you anyway. In fact, you know what? You kicked him out. And now that he's gone, you're going to go in town, you go to Bloomingdale's, you find yourself some nice dresses, get yourself some shoes, you know, find somewhere, maybe you get a facial. And, uh, oh, hire a decorator to come in here quick, because damn. 
you can be that considerate and funny and mouthy. That's a, that's a good balance for a screen character. Mm, yeah, although um, I was intrigued by the fact that Kay considers that makes him childish. He says he can have a neuralizer when he grows up. Mm. And I wonder if that's a hint at Kay having been in this job too long and now he's becoming cynical. He's not seeing oh, yeah. them as individuals anymore. Yeah, that I think that's implied. I think it's it's implied that Kay's way of doing things is a little bit stiff and old. Mm. And that at the end, when Jay turns up in his new suit without the tie and like with this, what the 90s thought the future would look like clothes-wise <laughs> uh, level of suit... It's, it's kind of oh this is gonna be a, this ain't, this ain't gonna be your mama's Men in Black next time around. Turned out Men in Black Two is not your mama's Men in Black so much as your crazy aunt who won't stop sending you funny memes on Facebook to do with minions. <laughs> it was her Men in Black. Right. Another interesting parallel I noticed this time around and only this time around, and it w- wasn't the whole way through. It was just a couple of exchanges. Jay reminded me of Tom Hanks, or at least. Will Smith's performance as Jay in Dragnet as Pep Strebeck. Effectively, you're doing the, uh, the the young chaotic cop versus the old stodgy cop. So it's a similar dynamic. But there were just a couple of things like when he drinks the lemonade, and obviously there's no sugar in the house because Edgar's drunk it all. And so he does this weird little face. That's Tom Hanks in Big. Will Smith has an ability to turn on a dime and go from cracking wise and exchanging witty banter to shouting loud and fast in a comedic rather than alarming fashion, much like young Hanks. Why can't we go to New York? There is no way that we are going on a plane to meet some woman who could be a crazy, sick lunatic. Didn't you see Fatal Attraction? You wouldn't let me. Well, I saw it, and it scared the shit out of me. It scared the shit out of every man in America. N-Y-P-D means I will knock your punk ass down. He's coming. He's coming. And when he gets here, I'll arrest his ass too. And the bit I just mentioned about the flipping the rod, that seems like the sort of thing that young Tom Hanks would have done. And there's a couple of little exchanges which seem like uh, wise-ass, funny Tom Hanks prior to him doing the drama thing would have carried it off like that. I have some problems with the whole men in black doing everything on Centurion time. It's a 37-hour working day, and uh, Zed says, oh, you'll get used to it in a few months, or you'll have a psychotic episode. And it's like, um, you guys can't expect your MIBs having a psychotic episode to not have catastrophic galactic implications. How about you make the MIBs on Earth work on whatever goddamn time zone they're in? It's too much to expect them to not stick to not stick with circadian rhythm when everybody else around them isn't. I mean, it emphasizes how out of step with the rest of the human race they are, but it's never explored apart from in that one sentence. And the whole, oh, you'll have a psychotic episode. Well, therein lies a tale. <laughs> what happened to Zed's predecessor? This is around the time when you get to see Kay's longing and regret, not voiced, just on his face and contextually as he's um, looking at his fiance is worse than wife and worse than girlfriend because it's something that didn't quite happen and it doesn't allow either of them to really move on. Mm. It's a quick, subtly done scene that just sets up what happens later. It's uh, emotionally economical, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And again, since Kay exemplifies the MIB themselves and he symbolizes the old way of doing things which Jay is about to start upsetting and that could have led to all kinds of different sequels that didn't happen. His statement about 
There's always an Achillean battlecruiser or a Carillion death ray or an intergalactic plague that's about to wipe out all life on this miserable little planet. The only way these people can get on with their happy lives is that they do not know about it. It is the sister speech to the one about a person is smart. Mm. And it speaks of a pretty severe detachment on Kay's part, as in he's over the years become subsumed in his role and detached from humanity and sees them almost as a different species. It's symbolic that they remove your fingerprints if you're going to join the MIB. You you aren't playing their game anymore. Which, again, I suppose that that's why the centurion time of 37-hour days, just to show that they're out of step. Mm. Right. You know that bit where Laurel is uh, being threatened by Edgar and then J and K turn up and she says, you know, how about you take me with you? And J feels like she's coming on to him and she's like, I've got to show you something pointing at her crotch. And then he's not really picking up on it. I started writing down, is this fine now? And then I concluded afterwards that I felt it was. What do you think on it? I never had a problem with it and Mm -hmm. do not have a problem with it, primarily because of how it closes out and her reaction to him. Bingo. That was my re- uh, reasoning as well. Uh, because? Well, because the the whole point is that she is trying to communicate something to him and he is oblivious and she is allowed to make explicit reference to that fact mm. and specifically highlights the idea that what is it she says? Any time a woman shows the slightest hint of sexual independence and then she's like, oh yeah, Edgar's got a gun to my head at this point. Probably <laughs> focus on that. Yeah. It's that she comes off as the smart one uh, out of the scene. And uh, uh, again, the employing of her as Agent L at the end was really gratifying and completely shat upon by the second film. Yes. One of the other reasons that I really don't like it. But I I would put it in the same category as Marion trying to seduce Belloc in order to escape Mm. in Raiders. And this scene is sandwiched between two really not cool bits that don't serve any actual humour and are quite uncomfortable. The double ridiculing of two entirely separate Indian men. There's the guy who's selling postcards and Edgar snatches them up and he shouts, that's three for a dollar. Like, you know, this clearly dangerous man's running off and he still just wants to get that sale. Could you have maybe humanized him instead of trying to get a, make a cheap joke at his expense? Mm. And you could almost let that one slide, but then immediately afterwards, Edgar steals a taxi from an Indian man and then throws all of his trinkets out into the street, which seem gaudy and make him look like he's got too much golden crap in his taxi, which is very much a, like, you know, I live in New York, I get taxis all over the place. What the fuck have they got all these weird little things on the dash for? I don't know if that relates to cab drivers. Not as many as you might think. That line from earlier. But it feels like this was an undeveloped gag. Yeah. It's just two bits I could cut out easily and it would not diminish the film. An attempt at that vaguely comedy racism. That it's a bit Michael though, Bay. Both of those are a bit Michael Bay. A bit, yeah. There is also in this quite a bit of fat shaming which is unnecessary. At the very beginning, Jay is being interviewed by the cops after he's apprehended the... Cephalopoid. Cephalopoid. And he, he drops one insulting reference to the fact that this cop is a little bit overweight. And you could kind of let that slide, but he just keeps going. 
It's not as bad by any means as the disabled versus slave back and forth in Wild Wild West by any means. But uh, this guy's clearly a prick, and Jay picks on his weight as yeah. uh, a, a way to get at him. Mm. So it's it's a it's a tough one. Also, I think the point that Jay's making there is: if you're a police officer and have to apprehend a suspect, you weren't able to because you are unfit. It's not necessarily fat shaming. It's saying you shouldn't be a police officer required to chase down suspects if you can't actually keep in shape. Mm. Well, it speaks to his superiority complex definitely that he's the best one of all of them because he Mm. is able to do what they can't however that's not outlined as a character flaw you're supposed to be with jay at that point that's the problem okay i get you there in fact jay has a curiously unexplored disdain for humanity throughout all three films and it's especially strong in two he outright hates human beings in two he's a human racist They never challenge it, they never really address it, and it goes nowhere. And that's why this is definitely less than a Marvel film. Because Marvel films deliver a flawed protagonist, and the story is about them growing, even in a small capacity, and overcoming an aspect of themselves. And hopefully, as of Phase 4 onwards, maybe a few more herselves. Now, the more Phase 3 Marvel thing to do would be for the events of Men in Black 2, now that you'd established that Jay is going to start doing things differently, and now that we've established that Men in Black is uh, not only useful, but crucial to the existence of Earth uh, and the uh, continued intergalactic peace that they are assisting with rather than overseeing, if you could then start challenging that the way that they challenge Wakanda or immediately in the first Black Panther and go, you know what, this utopia... There's problems with it, but there's none of that in Men in Black 2. There's a uh, contest in the film betwixt practical and CG. And honestly, they they get away with the fact that they're actually, while it's a big alien film, there's less effects than you might remember. They don't lean on them as hard as a lot of films that followed Men in Black, which kept the budget down. There are so few CG effects in this, Mm -hmm. that in the credits, there is not a single CG effect team. There are a handful of small teams assigned by individual sequence. Right. So, Edgar team. Yeah. For the giant cockroach guy. I have never seen that. And car team. Yeah. Well, since then, uh, there's been you know, much more proliferation of Absolutely. CG. Absolutely. So, yeah, since then, it's just been this massive wall of people who are all responsible yeah. for the CG effects. But uh, it's, it was the late 90s, so they kind of had to put CG in there. Clearly, they did the right thing because the film made loads of money. And it wasn't like, uh, you know, if, you, if you'd just not done CG, it would have made more. In fact, it probably would have looked older and less new and fresh uh, and, and would have been less appealing to audiences if they'd made it with fantastic practical the way that, say, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army did. Although, obviously, there's some a lot of um, non-practical Golden Army guys in there near the yeah. end. Yeah, but I, I think the, the skill to blend wasn't quite there. Oh, no. So Sonnenfeld making the decision to keep it either distant mm-hmm. or small... Mm-hmm. And infrequent was the right choice. The practical all looks fantastic, by the way. It's important mm. to say that the, the little... Um, uh, there's occasionally there'll be aliens that are just slightly off camera. And sometimes like the, the, the guys monitoring all of those aliens... Uh, 
and Bob, those guys close up look kind of like ass. So again, you can have CG that looks like ass and practical that looks like ass in one film. But uh, the, the little alien, the pu- squid that pukes all over Will Smith looks alive mm. and looks cute enough for the whole audience to go, ah, and actually be kind of happy and glow at the, the birth of a, a new child. And it, it's a humanizing event. That's mm. key yeah. to making us understand these aliens are people just Absolutely. like us. And is the uh, Arcalian member of the royal family, when the, his thing opens up, is that a Puppet. That's Is a that puppet. An yeah, that's animatronic. Yeah, mm. but it's difficult to tell because yeah. they're zoomed right in on it, so you can't see yeah. any actual humans in the frame. The, uh, Mikey is CG. Mm. A lot of that uh, uh, is CG. The little stick insect guys are CG. I think the uh, the puppy dog thing, uh, the the moving mouth is CG. Although they also have quite a lot of dog in there as well. It's Maybe they did the babe thing, where they just add a mouth to a, a, a puppy. But the actual CG, the things that they really invest in, the car and Edgar in particular, look like shit mm-hmm. by today's standards. But you forgive it, because everything else in the film is so great. Yeah. I suppose if you, if you made that now with... You pasted over that special edition style with 2019 graphics, it would feel... Anomalous. It would feel anachronistic, effects-wise. Your your brain would tell you, well, those effects aren't from 1997. But the whole film is powered by the rapport between Smith and Jones, which, had it not worked straight out of the gate, this film probably would have just been a whoop and then forgotten mm. type thing. Yeah. Uh, the, the rapport between Smith and Klein in World Wild West wasn't even there. I was. Just they seemed about to hate to each other in real life. Yeah. Yeah. The irony is maybe they actually liked each other and for some reason weren't able to convey that on the uh, screen in in the form of a sparky relationship. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, Smith and Jones play off each other extremely well, and that's tough with Tommy Lee Jones because a lot he is actually quite ornery in real life. Yeah. Well known grouchy bastard. Yeah. He's a sourpuss. It most definitely works in this one, possibly too well. Because the major problem with two and three was that the perception on the part of the people making these films mm-hmm. was that the magic was in Smith and Jones, and yeah. that was it, and that they had to maintain that and keep bringing that duo back together. Hence why they insisted on. Yeah, but it's not J and K, it's Men in Black. That name encompasses a hell of a lot, and it's only now with Men in Black International that they're actually expanding beyond that. Mm. And for a, a quite a while, there was going to be a new Men in Black that was a 23 Jump Street. So Jenko and Schmitty were going to be Men in Black, and like the, the way that they parodied that at the end of 22 Jump Street. I don't know if they actually had a Men in Black poster, but it feels like they did. Mm. So there was a, a brief time when I stuck my Men in Black Blu-ray before 21 and 22 Jump Street went, well, that's a series now because they're going to tie that one together later. But that project fell through and ended up becoming Men in Black International, which uh, obviously is something they could have done a long time ago. There were things they could have done with Jay and ways they could have challenged that character and moved things forwards in 2 and 3 that in no way involved Kay. Mm. Because, again, part of what powers this... in that we walk away from the film in 1997 thinking, well, that was really good, is the way Kay ends this and just retires, hands in his gun, gives, says, you know, you're the guy now, Jay, and um, goes off to actually live the life he could have lived. Mm. And that's a sweet and measured way to end this film. 
This scene puts the whole film in perspective and it makes you understand what this was all about. And it's very simple. It's very much a all is right with the world moment. The old step back, the young step forward. It's the way things should be. And Danny Elfman's score conveys that to you wordlessly. Okay, come on, man. What, who's she going to tell? She ain't out with all dead people. It's not for her. It's for me. What? They're beautiful, aren't they? Stars. I mean, I never look at them anymore, but they actually are quite... Um, beautiful. Okay, uh, you're frightening your partner. I haven't been training a partner. I've been training a replacement. Wait a minute, Kay. I cannot do this job by myself. Hey, guys. My apartment isn't anywhere near here. It's not even on the same island. Days, months, years. Always face it forward. Hey. I've just been down the gullet of an interstellar cockroach kid. That's one of a hundred memories that I don't want. See you around, Jay. No, you won't. And it is a blissfully short film. It's an hour and 38 minutes. They don't make blockbusters like that. They don't make them like this anymore. And those hour and 38 minutes just whiz by. Mm. Let's see if the hour and 28 minutes of Men in Black 2 whizzes by with exactly the same speed. I doubt it somehow. In the year 2002, when the out of this world gets out of control, don't bother calling the CIA. Forget the FBI, because there's only one government agency we can turn to. This package is in clear violation of Section 3.1 of the United States Postal Code. Next! Kevin. <laughs> wow. Kevin, that's funny. You just, you don't have like a Kevin. Okay, straight to the point. You are a former agent of a top secret organization that monitors extraterrestrials on Earth. Hey! You're back! Hey, somebody said you were dead. You look good. The deneuralizer. In a few moments, transverse magneto energy will surge through your brain, unlocking information that could hold the key to Earth's very survival. Oh, okay, what's that thing? The deneuralizer. season they're back in black men in black too it's a fucking horrible movie and we've just seen it for the first time in oh such a long time but it feels like far too soon i would agree what a fucking drop off I am hard-pressed to think of a film with a sequel as suddenly 
so much worse than the original. So terrible. We're talking Butch and Sundance, the early years levels of diminishing creative returns. Oh, one good example I thought of was the drop-off between Terminator 2 and Terminator 3. But this makes Terminator 3 look like the winter fucking soldier. Uh, Adam's Family Reunion after Barry Sonnenfeld's Adam's Family Values. There you go. Mm -hmm. Okay. But usually when it's like that, it's because... They've had to change the whole team, the whole budget, the whole setup of the thing. Like Adam's Family Reunion was a TV movie, clearly. It's yeah. it's it's rubbish. Although somehow they waste Tim Curry and Daryl Hannah in, in the, the lead roles. So. I would uh I would say, however, there is one, I believe, uh, very significant change about this, and that's the writer. Yeah. The uh, original writer was swapped out for uh Robert Gordon and Barry Fanaro. And I've never heard of them. If you remember, the original writer was Ed Solomon, who brought us Bill and Ted, one, two, and apparently three. Yeah. Robert Gordon. Addicted to love. But But Galaxy Galaxy Quest. Quest. How can you go from Galaxy Quest to three years later, Men in Black 2, it doesn't make any sense, and then Lemony Snicket, the film that we prefer to the Barry Sonnenfeld-produced TV show. This is weird. But he also did the story for Wonder Park. Now, the story for Wonder Park technically is fairly sound, but the execution is terrible. So uh, there's a, a Folding Ideas video on Wonder Park and why it is... Troubling, to say the least. Uh, but you can uh, go check that one out. I thoroughly recommend uh, his work. Uh, but I don't get how you could write Galaxy Quest and then do Men in Black 2. It, it doesn't make any sense. Who did you write Galaxy Quest with? David Howard. David Howard, who doesn't have his own page. So one thing we forgot to mention in the last one is how great Vincent D'Onofrio is as a villain. Yeah. it's. I mean, Vincent D'Onofrio does make a good villain. My, He's a great big angry baby as Kingpin. He is. My opinion of him is is often quite up and down. Yeah. But in this, it's an up. It's He is great in this, yeah. Well, he's... He's, he's used sparingly. Yes. And he's got an, an awkwardness about him and a, a craziness which is off, uh, offset against the uh, very serious men in black. Mm. And that whole, give him a break. And it's the... Uh, pretending to be human and not being convincing at all. Which Vincent D'Onofrio does impressively yeah. all the time. But, like, the whole point of Men in Black is things pretending to be things fairly convincingly, and yes. he does it badly. Yes, he does do it badly. Uh, but his physical performance is fantastic. Yeah. And his makeup's excellent, too. So there's this one bit where uh, the most of the best practical effects in Men in Black are, say, the tech, the uh, sets, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the props, the stuff that's tangible and you can hold on to, and a couple of the aliens. Um, there's a bit where he starts tearing off the Ega suit at the end and starts becoming this disgusting Guillermo del Toro bug creature thing. When you watch it again, you're like, ooh, this could turn into something like um, Mimic, but good. And- <laughs> <laughs> and then he turns into a screensaver and you're like, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, everything else still going around it is great. And specifically uh, Will Smith's reaction to this bug, which allows you to at least feel that the bug's actually there. But now that I've seen Men in Black 2, Will Smith really giving a shit about stuff is held in sharp contrast. Indeed, this is true. Because he doesn't, he is checked out in this. Honestly, what they have done to his character is, I would say shocking, but it just, 
it's kind of not that massive compared to everything else that's done badly here, but it's just so nothing and non-existent. He's gone from being this cool, arrogant, self-assured... Funny. Funny, I can do everything I want. Human. Yeah, in the first one, to klutzy. One of the notes I made about the first film was that there are a couple of occasions where they waste Will Smith on falling over humour. Oh, you mean when the tentacles dragging him in and out of the car? Um, that's actually not too bad. Okay. Um, because it's offset against Tommy Lee Jones being deadpan in the foreground. Mm-hmm. But things like when the car turns upside down and his face pressed against the windscreen. Yeah. But there might. That's offset against Tommy Lee Jones to... being totally uh, deadpan. It is when they though. go back into the car. Yeah. yeah. But okay. there is a little bit of tumbling about kind of humour. But in this, oh my God. It's every other joke. He's being flung all over the place and screaming. He really? Because screaming doesn't cost anything. And for yeah. some reason, the thing they wanted to cut costs on most was the script, because there's barely anything here. It's held together with tissue. The other thing is as well, in the first one, Jay sounds streetwise, yeah. but intelligent. He yeah. sounds like a really smart guy. And in this, he sounds dumb. Because it's funnier, apparently. A film is only as intelligent as its script. Remember when I said in that first one that uh, uh, Kay compares the Earth to Casablanca, but no Nazis? In this, the there's a direct comparison line where um, Laura Flynn Boyle's evil alien, whose name is Lavernicus, what's her name? Uh, Lavinia? Uh, Selenicus? Selenicus. Doesn't matter. She's, she makes no uh, impact. Uh, says... You know, the third planet. She says that to Johnny Knoxville, who... This is the first time I'd ever seen Johnny Knoxville because I hadn't seen the Jackass movie and I'd never seen Jackass. So I was like, this guy's an asshole. Obviously, later on, I was like, oh, Johnny Knoxville's got loads of charisma. Complete waste of Johnny Knoxville. Who's actually quite good in a film called Grand Theft Parsons. But he goes, third rock from the sun to the audience. I just got that. This film expects a dumb audience. Now, it's okay to like Men in Black 2, although there's so many other good films to like, but Men in Black 2 thinks you're dumb, and it's only going to pitch to you at that level. Also, they keep pausing for canned laughter. Yeah, they're like, like, oh, let's just everyone pause while Will Smith says a thing and then just waits for a while for everyone to stop gut laughing. So it's an hour and 28 minutes long. How long do you think it would be if they took all the canned laughter pauses out? All the canned laughter and screaming and being flung through the air and just off-colour jokes. You take that out, you've got four minutes left. First of all, there's uh, a waste of Patrick Warburton. And uh, he could be an MIB agent who's uh, kind of uh, good at his job, but uh, a little heavy-handed at times. Mm. Uh, But instead, he's just a moron. And you wonder how he could have been like that for five months without them going, whoa, whoa, we literally can't let you out on the street, you could endanger the world. The MIB is a, from the looks of it, fairly small organisation, even though it is international. The things they deal with are important on a potentially universal scale. You can't have someone who's this dumb. And it also undermines how difficult it was for Jay to get in in the first place and how tightly knit that organisation has to be and how intelligent everyone has to be. You remember when I said that like everyone else in the MIB seems like just this dullard? Well, this film really overemphasizes that to the point where it's difficult to imagine people being smart in the first one Everyone because all the background top. characters are morons. Mm. And in this one, all the foreground characters are morons too, which means we're fucked as a universe. Mm-hmm. Um, that thing you said earlier about the, the lines themselves, 
contain characterization along with the exposition so that you get something said, but it also establishes who's saying it mm. in this. There's no establishment. There's, they just say the plot at this, you. I was going to say, there is... And it's not funny either. Bad. Pointless. And also, it just re-exposes the same principle over and over, and it never gets more in-depth or intriguing. Yeah. Here's our concept. You going to do anything with that? No. no. And the effects. The effects look on the level of Mortal Kombat Annihilation, but without the laughability of the fact that they're playing that totally straight. Yeah. You know how there's a point in... Because they're, they're terrible effects and they're trying to make you laugh, whereas in Mortal Kombat Annihilation it's supposed to be thrilling? Question mark? Mm, okay, sorry, mark. carry on. The, there's, a, there's a particular quality that bad CG had around the turn of the century. It's worse than Millennial Rubber, though. It is worse than Millennial Rubber, and it's... Millennial Rubber is where you cannot handle the human frame and the bodies that get shown are... Very clearly not human. There's, uh, they are ragdolling around all over the There's place. a bit where J- in the first film where Jay gets sucked into the car by the tentacle and then thrown out the other side. There's a bit of like compositing various images, but I think it is still Will Smith rather than a CGI model of Will Smith, or obviously the tentacle is CGI. So they've got Will Smith on a rig. Very wisely, they didn't go the millennial rubber route. Mm-hmm. Um, but say Neville Longbottom, who's the, my go-to guy for Millennial Rubber, when he gets thrown around in the first Harry Potter film and falls to the ground, like he becomes a wobbly rag doll, and it's, that's clearly not a guy. Um, it happens a couple of times with uh, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, especially in the first one. Mm, but and, it's less obvious there because he's wearing a spider suit. Yeah, and it happens sometimes during Sp- the hallowed sacred cow of Spider-Man 2. But we need a new name for... How like tentacle effects from this era, because these things are like they're not even not finished. They don't even look like they were started properly. No, there's. I'm trying to think. There's something a film or something where there is somebody looking at virtual reality pipes or cables or a long string of shit or something. <laughs> That's what these tentacles always end up looking like. Yeah. Something out of the lawnmower man or something yeah. like that. But no, the, the the point that I was trying to make was there's a, a particular issue with CG around this time where it looks like they've created a CG image in Photoshop. Yeah, a model. Cut it out and stuck it onto the background and you end up with this weird sort of cut out shadow mm. around the thing. There's no ability at that time to blend mm. the CG. That, this is why the Lord of the Rings films are masterpieces and always were straight out the gate. So even the janky stuff like uh, Legolas's Digital Double, yeah. occasionally you're like, well, oh, oh, let that pass. Because yeah. like, say the cave troll, that's a masterful creature. It really is. The creature effects in this. They look like Doctor Who, at its worst, meets Dick Tracy at times. If you ever, do you ever see the Warren Beatty Dick Tracy film? There's one guy with a, a big, a big wide head in this oh, who right. looks like a dude out of Dick Tracy. Oh, okay. And like they, they all look like, I think We Hate Movies said... Buffy concept art that got left on the cutting room floor and they just like picked it up and went, oh, we're going to be using this then. All the creatures look just hastily thrown together, but without the charm of, say, if it was a Swedish movie. It's mm. got just enough, this is actually a legitimate movie, to just look disappointing from every angle. 
It would actually be better if they were made of pipe cleaners and cardboard tubes, at least obviously. then they would look like somebody made them. And crafted them, yeah. Mm. Like, actually, some effort got put into them, and they were, they were loved, and there was some kind of, uh, like... I, I've there has been so much better cosplay mm, yeah. than these. The, this what you end up with is it screams. Oh, I don't know. Stick that there and put that on <laughs> that, and there you go. It's done. Right. Speaking of creatures, Frank the dog. Mm-hmm. Remember when I said I was already tired of him when I first saw the Men in Black? He's yes. back in this. There's way too much of him. He's yes. entirely superfluous. He doesn't achieve anything. Him being in this film is only there for the kids and people who are like, oh, remember the dog? That was great. Can we have about half an hour of him this time? He is a Kmart rocket raccoon. Fuck this guy. Get rid of him. We, uh... Passports, no rush. How to hang in, Jay? You have got to stop neutralizing MIB personnel. The dude was crying in the middle of the diner. I hate that. And and plus, you can't count Elle. I mean, she wanted to go back to the morgue. I just, I helped her. You need a partner. I'm cool. I'll be his partner. Jay, wait up. I appreciate the shot, man. Thought I'd never get out of that mailroom. Lose the suit. Sure thing, partner. No problem, Just going for the look. But if I say so myself, I do find the overall effect very slimming. And not that I've had any problems with the ladies or what have you. It's just that when you get down a brass tack, they Whoa, nice sled. Very swank. Heated seats? Sometimes I get hives. And I learned to get along, and so you're back from outer space. I just walked in to find you here with that sad look upon your face. I should have changed that stupid lock. I should have made you leave your key. If I'd known for just one second, you'd be back to bother me. Go on now, go. Walk out the door. Frank! Frank! That's it. That's the joke. It's a dog singing I Will Survive. That's all all there was. That's... All there was in 2002. So he's going on the pile, is he? Yeah. The pile of shit that we are removing from Men in Black 2. Can I add Lara Flynn Boyle to that pile, please? Did you not like her? (laughs) She wasn't as good as Vincent D'Onofrio, I'll give you that. I'm not the biggest fan of Lara Flynn Boyle anyway, but this is is actually nothing to do with her as an actress. It's to do with the fact that we've gone... I mean, there is there is minimal female representation in the Men in Black movies as, it, as oh, it is. We didn't even mention the fact that Linda Fiorentino has been fucking snipped out of this whole thing. Well, She's that's, gone. That's what I'm about to get to. You had Linda Fiorentino. You had an, albeit lightly used, great female character. And you have swapped her out <laughs> for Lara Flynn Boyle in stilettos and her underwear. I do wonder if the character uh, Rosario Dawson's playing mm. was actually supposed to be Agent L, but when uh, but when Linda Fiorentino read the script, she went, "No, oh no, yeah, no, thank you, no, yeah, no, I'm not doing that film." So they created the Rosario Dawson character. Do not get me wrong, I love. Rosario Dawson. So do I. She's she is the, uh, not in enough stuff. She is one of the only things on my very short list of things I like about this movie. She's the only thing on the very short, well, the, the the one long thing list of things that I like about this movie. And it's only because she plays the character absolutely straight. She does, yes. That She has nearly nothing to, to say. She's about five lines in the whole movie. But she seems to give a shit about what's going on. No one else she does. does. Because she's awesome and she gives a shit about everything. Even when she's in crap. 
Oh, back to Frank the dog, by the way. Jay makes a few jokes at his expense regarding him being a dog, and he says, hey, that's canine profiling. Ugh. <sighs> and it's like, you're sitting right next to Will Smith. He shouldn't, he, we know he doesn't find that joke funny. Mm-hmm. So that automatically made me feel really uncomfortable. And I was right about the whole um, babe effects thing. It is basically just a pug dog that they've added a CGI face to. So only one-tenth of this dog looks like rubber shit. The rest of it is just a dog. So, you know. Nine-tenths of that dog is okay, just not the tenth that keeps talking about shagging all the ladies. Again, that's that's all the joke. He's just barking to a well-known pop song. You tell the girl you love her? Hey, man, she's a witness to a crime. That's it. Yada, yada, you're attracted. She's not even my species, and I'm attracted. I'm supposed to take advice on love from a dude that chases his own ass? Easy, pal. That's canine profiling, and I resent it. I couldn't stop thinking of Marvel, and for very good reasons I'll get into at the uh, end. If nothing else, this is the cinematic equivalent of being tied to a radiator and beaten with a bat. And thinking of Marvel is like uh, where you go for your happy place so that you can kind of get away from all the pain. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, And we get back to Tommy Lee Jones, uh, because as I said, uh, it's not enough for Will Smith to be able to lead this movie. They've got to shunt him back in with Tommy Lee Jones, uh, because that chemistry worked so well in the first one and everyone liked it but that chemistry is now wildly different because will smith doesn't give a shit and neither does tommy lee jones absolutely and that chemistry (laughs) in the original movie was based on a pretty damn good script well they figured listen what if now will smith's the experienced one and tommy lee jones is the rookie and that'll work it'll be even funnier maybe it's not the least bit funny or engaging it's actually quite unsettling to watch it's especially unsettling when you use lines from the first film and just stick the word again on the end of it yeah (laughs) that's hilarious keep doing that boys that's just that way you don't ever have to actually write anything original jones now seems distracted bored disengaged and sometimes confused i know how he feels Uh, when uh, Jay meets him, he starts off with, in, in the, he's in the post office working away, and uh, Jay says, you know, you used to work with me in MIB. He knows that as far as Kay, Kevin, is concerned, he spent 35 years in a coma. He needs to start off and say, okay, like, first of all, I, I need to talk to you not in public, so mm-hmm. talk to, get him somewhere private, and then say, right, you, you believe that you, were, uh, you spent 35 years in a coma. No, you were working for uh, the agency that I now work for. You recruited me. And just take this bit seriously. Don't do this as a comedy bit. Actually, take the premise of your film seriously, because that's what Marvel do. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's gags as well. But if you don't give a shit about anything, we can tell. But here's the thing. He finally talks him into it and gets him into the car and, and, and sort of says... That's why your wife left you. In that, you know, all he ever does is like all he ever does is think about aliens or something. Something like that. It's that these. It's a throwaway remark. Surfacing in weird ways. He says that's why your wife left you, and Kay punches him, and it's like ah, and then they move on. 
That's a really serious dramatic moment,、yes. especially because they sold it so hard in the last one. At the same time, with a very measured, slight hand, like they they sold it like we felt it hard, but they didn't really. Melodramatize it so that it feels like it was a real event. Him that came going back to her, and then they write her out the same way they write out Linda Fiorentino. Yeah, she's just gone. And rather than making that a moment of drama, it's made as a throwaway gag. And fuck you, Men in Black too. Kay is not a puncher for a start. The parallel for this line、yeah. in the first movie is when. Jay says to him, it catches him looking at his、uh, the the woman he was in love with, and says, "It's, It's better, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." And he just goes, "Try it." Really short, gets up, walks off. That's how Kay responds when you catch him in a moment of emotional rawness.、Mm. So I put it to you that this is not the character of Kay, or the character all. of Jay, or the、not、film series、this、of Men at MIB. Replica of K that got stuck in a post office. I'm going to go ahead and say this ain't even canon. Well, yeah, no, I yeah, I can head canon this one out of existence.、Yeah. Fuck it, fuck、But、this film. They they replace the those beautiful moments of genuine pathos from the first one with this naff, romantic, non-existent connection between. Will Smith and Rosario Dawson, which feels very forced. Which is, it feels extremely forced. There's not enough of it to even really feel like it's there, and then they use it for emotional twist at the end because it's like, oh, Jay's losing her because she has to go off into space. Kay's right there. They have just alluded to the fact that this is his daughter, and nothing, just nothing. But Will Smith was horny, and she kind of liked him. Absolutely. Why? Why is that? He's lonely, but it's like maybe you can't have a wife. Okay, so can agents get together? And this is really important for Men in Black International because it helps with my fanfic slash fic. Sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> But seriously, if you can't have a wife or a husband or someone who you're in a companionship with in intimate fashion, you're gonna go crazy and you're gonna completely detach from humanity, just like the fucking Jedi. Even if you're asexual, you still get lonely. So perhaps a slightly healthier way of putting it would be: actually, yes, agents can get together, but they're not allowed to work together because otherwise they get on each other's tits. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, but but the especially if you're doing a thirty-five hour day. Yeah, it, I mean, and it's not specifically the not having a wife, obviously, but the the not being able to form any personal connections. It's so thin. It's so pathetic. There's a line where Laura does the oh, that sounds so lonely. lonely. Then explore that for the love of. God, no, don't just say it and then move we've on. We've only got eighty-eight minutes for the whole thing, from beginning to credits, included credits. God, sorry, I'm spiking the recording. That's fine. Crazy here, I do apologise. <laughs> then they go back to MIB headquarters with with Tommy Lee Jones going, "Huh, what's that? What's that?" And which is exactly just the same thing with again after it. Stop it. <laughs> and this time the aliens on the TV. You got Michael Jackson. Talking alive, looking bony and ghostly, and it's really fucking uncomfortable, especially now. How'd it go? Zed, the drill locks are gone and the treaty is signed. Good work. Zed, what about that position you promised me in Men in Black? 
You're breaking up. Zed? Can't hear you. Hello? I'll call you back. I can be Agent M. And it's it's it feels like you know in Austin Powers three when everyone had cottoned on to Austin Powers being funny and so suddenly you got Tom Cruise and Danny DeVito and Gwyneth Paltrow turning up and doing like a Austin Powers movie within the movie and that's somehow still one of the funniest bits of Austin Powers three that's shitty but at the same time it feels like now everyone's doing it it's not funny anymore yeah. Yeah, Michael Jackson asking to be in the MIB is not funny and actually is really creepy, but they somehow managed to make that scene so much worse with the line. Go for it. I can't remember exactly what it is, but Zed says something along the lines of... Still working on the Alien Affirmative Action Program. I'll keep you posted. Wait a minute, that's not what you promised me. Mm. You have heard our Get Out show, folks. Uh, Chris Rock did a whole bit on affirmative action and uh, that there is no place for it in an MIB movie. Uh, Not as a a throwaway gag. Not when the headlining star is Will Smith. Nope, sorry. Nope. Not in 2002. Not in 1982. And he's saying it in a very dismissive way as well. It's like... In a kind of... Just trying to like... Oh, we're just... Just trying to get rid of Get rid of Michael Jackson. Yeah. Ugh. It's it's really oh, uncomfortable. Um, also, I, I never saw the MIB headquarters quite so much like an airport in the first one. But it looks really like an airport. Now, you get a lot of side-on shots of it. It's like, well, there's the Burger King. Make sure you go there. Like, get a healthy Burger King endorsement of that. They've also got uh, endorsements from eBay and Fucking PlayStation when they control the flying car at the end with a PlayStation controller. Mm-hmm. Will Smith shouts while they're in the flying car at Tommy Lee Jones, didn't your mom ever get you a Game Boy? And I thought, right, you, Will Smith, were probably uh, too old for a Game Boy when it came out in 1989 and you were already doing your Fresh Prince uh, and Jazzy Jeff sing songs with Girls Ain't Nothing But Trouble. And Tommy Lee Jones would have been what? 45 at that point? I checked. 43. Really close. In 1989, when the Game Boy came out, he was 43. So, yeah. No, my mom didn't get me a Game Boy, because when I was the appropriate age for Game Boys, it was 1956. What you did get me was some Play-Doh, some Silly Putty, a Magic 8-Ball, a Frisbee, a Slinky, a Pogo Stick, and a Hula Hoop. Jay takes um, Kay to the deneuralizer, which is the thing that undoes the plot from the uh, first film. And honestly, if you've actually taken on board that first film and liked it, the only natural response to being told that there's a deneuralizer uh, to undo plot is fuck off! And you're supposed to throw up both middle fingers and leave the screen mm-hmm. at that point. Yep. Absolutely. And I think it's in the trailer, so just don't go see it. Yeah. I actually have another point about the deneuralizer, and that's that <laughs> uh, Laura Flynn Boyle knows about it mm-hmm. and and says when she's trying to find Kay, they'll be looking for a deneuralizer, find the deneuralizer. She's just arrived on Earth. How the hell does she know about the deneuralizer? Okay, so she takes over the whole of MIB headquarters. She's just this snake pokey woman and all the MIB agents are routed and JNK's immediate response from the room that they're in is to escape uh, and be flushed out of the headquarters if this was Starfleet in J.J. Abrams universe every single MIB agent would be grabbing space guns out of panels that slide off in the walls 
and assaulting Lara Flynn Boyle's character to purge this hostile alien from this key MIB nerve center. It makes no sense that they'd be like, Cheese it! Robot house! That is, in the words of Tony Stark, giving away the farm. And that's it, and we never see a single fucking MIB agent after that. Did she kill them all? She may as well have. Under these circumstances. We don't see any of them run around outside headquarters either, so it's not as if we know they all escape. Jay and Kay never talk to any other agents. They make the dog and the fucking worm guys, not stick insect guys, they're called the worm guys in the credits. They make the worm guys honorary agents just because people remember them. This is what I mean about that. It's, it's the most superficial, stupid details that they hung over from the first film and like they didn't flesh out. They just put more of them in there. It doesn't make it deeper or better or funnier. There's just loads more of this little sight gag. You don't like it? You can kiss my furry little butt. That's all you really needed of that dog in the first place. And maybe the little bit of the shakedown, that's it. Nothing else after that. He's not a character. Also, here's another point on lazy-ass writing. Linda Fiorentino's character in the first one is called Laurel. Yeah. Rosaria Dawson. Rosaria Dawson in this, in two, is called Laura. And the princess, who is apparently her mother, is called Lorana. What the hell, people? What the actual hell? Women don't all have L names. What are you playing at? I can tell you what they're playing at. It was a macro to change all the laurels to Laura's, leaving behind one one single single dwigged. I, I, t- tell me I'm wrong, folks. I, do you know what? I actually could believe that. I could believe that. That's horrendous, but I could believe it. <laughs> if it isn't my old partner, Samuel L. Chang. Ha ha ha, Agent Michael Scarn. You so funny. Word. <laughs> a man sitting several seats down who has a gold face turns to Michael Scarn. Mr. Scarn, perhaps you would be more comfortable in my private jet. Yes, perhaps I would, golden face. Sam. Get my luggage. I forget it, brother. Samuel, you are such an idiot. You are the worst assistant ever. And you're disgusting. Dwigged? Wait, who's dwigged? Here's what we think happened. Michael's sidekick, who all through the movie is this complete idiot who's causing the downfall of the United States, was originally named Dwight, but then Michael changed it to Samuel L. Chang using a search and replace, but that doesn't work on misspelled words. Leaving behind one dwigged. And Dwight figured it out. Oops. D-W-I-G-H-T. And they changed mortuary to pizza parlor. Yeah. (laughs) Good fucking God. So yeah, the headquarters being invaded completely undermines the professionalism implied in MIB, making everyone seem incompetent and ineffectual. Everything feels smaller as a result. Mm. Because if everyone's dumb, none of this matters. If everyone's dumb, none of this matters. Bear that one in mind, folks, because if they're this dumb, they think you're this dumb. David Cross returns in a really bad way. There's like there's a joke about cerebral palsy in his lines. I don't know whether Cross came up with it himself because he's got a very, very dark sense of humour. It's not cerebral palsy. He says his mother has palsy. It's just anything you have that makes you, ha- makes you shake. Right, okay. Well, it's a joke about pizza rolls, so enjoy. Yeah. 
Yes, Mom, I'm up here with some friends. I want to have your baby. Would you like some mini pizza? You guys want some mini pizzas? They're good. They're like mini bagels with pizza stuff on them. She'll put a little Fontina cheese on, you know. She has palsy, so she ends up putting a lot of cheese on. <coughs> no thanks, we're cool. I've had some people saying, I really like Men in Black too. And that feels kind of sad because the makers are treating you guys with contempt. And I don't think that that should be rewarded with liking their product. There was one bit of pathos in the film when they... I feel like they were trying to pad out the running time. You know that Tales of the Unexplained thing at the beginning? Mm. I feel like that was only ever supposed to be the artifact in the movie. Mm. But the film itself ended up at 79 minutes long and they were like... That's not even a movie. Let's just put this bit at the beginning. They also added a short with the worm guys just to bring it up to feature length. It's it's barely a movie. You know how I said that that first one is joyfully fast? Mm-hmm. It's like it's disarmingly quick for a blockbuster movie. This is somehow so brief it's not even a movie and yet so interminably long you cannot wait for it. It's like it's just taking forever. Mm. Kay finds out about what happened with the, ostensibly the mother of Rosario Dawson's character, who was an alien who came to Earth and met with Kay and some other men in black, and clearly he fell in love with her and may even have had a relationship with her, and then he lost her. And a single tear rolls down his cheek, and he's doing some really excellent physical acting. And then it cuts to the next shot, his cheeks are completely dry, it's a different take, and they move the fuck on immediately because they, wa- they weren't going to make you sit with that. Mm. It was like... Oh, you don't get to sit with anything in this. Yeah. There, there will be no... No. There will be no engagement, folks. Good God, no. Uh, then they, they phone up MIB headquarters and talk to the dog, but it's Lara Flynn Boyle talking in the dog's voice, and I honestly expected the camera to pan back outwards, and she's got the dog pinned up against the wall with a snake from her arm round through his throat. Frank's fine, honey. Frank's just fine. Where are you? And then Tommy Lee Jones just says to Will Smith, your dog is dead. But no, that didn't happen. Shame, really. Yeah. That would have been a good end for Frank, frankly. It would. And the ending of this film, when they try to take down Laura Flynn Boyle's shitty spacecraft again with these terrible effects, ostensibly there was supposed to be a sequence with the Twin Towers. It was shot in 2001. It was before 9-11. And they took these scenes out. And rightly so. Absolutely rightly so. Nothing they could have shot, nothing would have made that worth it. Or the, something similar happened with Spider-Man. With the, There was a bank robbery and he ended up suspending the helicopter between the Twin Towers. Um, but in doing so, they haven't added anything new to it. Mm. Although the actual, actual ending after this shit show where they turn the Statue of Liberty into a giant neuralizer that neuralizes New York City which reminded me of that Fantastic Beast where they effectively neuralize all New York City raising many many questions and it's like oh don't think about that mm. at the end there's a bit where Jay's miserable because Rosario Dawson's character I can't even remember her name said Laura, Laura said I have to go now my planet, my planet needs, needs me. me and then took off in an egg crying and we're like well that's sad can we, like, is there any, like, what happens to Laura? Doesn't no, matter. No, She's no, not in it. Doesn't, on, there's no time. On, no on. time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there was time for them to do a, a, an ending where it's like a pep talk in a room, which seems like it was a cheap reshoot. Like, they got everyone back in yeah. for one more scene. The fucking dog's there. And then they open up 
uh, there's a whole thing about it's like a, you remember that Twilight Zone episode where there's a bunch of little people and they worship a dude like he's a god. It was parodied excellently in Futurama and The Simpsons. And then the Sea Monkeys episode of South Park in the episode Simpsons did it. Anyway. Yeah, that's off after the Outer Limits episode where a bunch of scorpions build Bow Bridge's face with sand. Bloody hell. Anyway, uh, it, they do that in an airport um, locker and then they bring the locker back at the end. And then they step through a door and it turns out that we're in a locker in an alien airport. That's the Earth. Although it seems smaller, shittier and the same thing as the marble gag at the end. Yeah. Only one second's worth of thinking tells you the scale is entirely wrong for the entire Earth to be contained within this locker. That's not what's actually going on here. It's just a portal to an alien airport. And the aliens are big. And you don't intend to in any way explore this. That's not an ending. Well, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't change anything. It only raises more questions, none of which I want the answers to, if you're going to be answering them in such a boneheaded way. Absolutely. My question was, are these people the Who's? Ha. The end seems so hastily reshot and looks like shit and talks like shit and doesn't really make any sense, yet matches every moment before this in the movie, which makes me think MIB2 was a reshoot. The whole thing. The whole thing. The bit where Laura leaves in her little spacecraft, because they again do that compositing thing where it looks like they've cut it out of Photoshop and they're moving it across the screen. It actually looks like the bit where Poochie disappears up into the sky. <laughs> it's terrible. It's so bad. Uh, do you know how much the original Men in Black cost? No. $90 million, which is low for a blockbuster. Mm, yeah, especially these days. Yeah, considering Titanic came out the same year, it cost $200 million. Yeah. Okay, uh... It made $589 million, which is a very tidy sum. It is. That's a good multiplier. This one made $441 million, which means it made less. Yeah, but that's still a lot. It still made way too much because people thought it would be good. Yeah. But it cost $140 million. So this cost $50 million more than the first one. That might have been the reshoots. Maybe. But it does make me wonder. I, I, I will always go back to this. The most important thing to get for a movie, especially a comedy in this case, Mm -hmm. is the script. Your writer! Get a really good script going before you do anything. If the script is this bad, it's not going to magically get better if you add money. It continues to bother the shit out of me that for some reason Hollywood producers seem to think that the script of your movie is the least important component. If you sat down and read the original Men in Black script, cover to cover, and then read the Men in Black 2 script, the difference would be mind-boggling. And it just so happens that that first one was an excellent showcase for the burgeoning new career of Will Smith. The second, by contrast, made people tired of Will Smith. That's a deeply harmful film. Somebody rip out of the depths of your imaginations appears Will Smith. Black suit, 
the black shades, the black shoes, black tie with the black attitude, new style black ray bands. I'm stunning, man. New hotness, pitch black, 600, man. Don't you understand what you thought I wouldn't come again? Leave you hanging without bringing you the fun again. Tangle in with the alien scum again. Mind your manners or the black suits running in. Nod your head. Let me see you nod your head like this. Let me see you like this. Let me see you bop your head. Nod your head. Come on. Let me see you like this. Let me see you nod your head like this. Check it. Yo, it's this chick, right? Serlina, making me sick, right? I said this was a product earlier, and I stand by that distinction. There is so little heart or meaning or philosophical standpoint in this that it is bereft of a soul. Any you might experience comes from Rosario Dawson bringing more to the role than it deserves. This is one of the worst films we've ever covered, and that's because it's empty. Down there with Aliens vs Predator Requiem and the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street, it is a clean white box filled with garbage. It tarnished Will Smith's career, which had already taken a hit from World Wild West a few years previously, and it killed the Men in Black series for a decade. Notably, when I asked you guys, the vast majority who spoke up liked the first film, disliked the second, or couldn't even make it the whole way through, and crucially, the majority did not come back for the third. And that's kind of a tragedy, because Men in Black 3 is not half bad. It needs to be seen in HD more than the other two. It should be relatively easy and cheap to track down on Blu-ray. It's also available on Netflix right now at time of recording. And we recommend you see it, because we are going full spoiler, and there are some neat surprises in there that you might like to experience for yourself firsthand. Incident report. Access denied. There are things out there you don't need to know. That's not the lie you told me when you recruited me. I promise you the secrets of the universe, nothing more. Well, what other secrets are there? Kay! Kay! I'm looking for Kay. Have you seen him? Sort of a surly older gentleman. He smiles like this. Kay has been dead for over 40 years. Here, take this. Now all you have to do is jump. You want me to jump? Time jump. Okay? How do you know my name? It's noteworthy that there was a five-year gap between one and two and a ten-year gap, during which time America changed immeasurably between two and three. Mm -hmm. Two was filmed pre-9-11, hence the two Twin Towers. And I released immediately post. Yeah. And, and this was released post many years of the war on terror. Post Spider-Man, post Iron Man, post Bush Jr., post-first black president, post-Avengers. Effectively, the series was in hibernation. America had changed, the world had changed, and movies had changed. Significantly. And the first thing that strikes you is how much better three looks than two, or even one. Mm. Uh, two looks like absolute hammered shit. Now, we saw two on DVD and three on Blu-ray, but the difference was night and it's day. It's not to do with the resolution. It's 
I think the main factor for me in terms of the visuals was that the CG has obviously come on in leaps and bounds in that 10 years. Yeah, it went from some of the worst CG you will ever see to actually okay-ish. Well, the... Pretty good. The CG that they used was, yeah, pretty reasonable. Actually, thinking about a lot of sequences, they literally couldn't have done and you just take for granted, which is good CG. Exactly, yeah. That is... um, That tells you that it's working when you don't really notice it. However, the downside of this Mm. is that they lean on CG. Yeah. A lot. The former practical effects Mm -hmm. are almost zero. Obviously, there's still the practical element of the weaponry and and the props and things like that Mm. but i didn't see much in the way of yeah that looks like a genuine practical effect except for uh, a lot of the stuff to do with the uh, the villain who uh, while he did have some cg elements to him was spent the whole time in some very heavy makeup that's true actually yeah yeah that's a good point the the makeup in terms of the actual visual element of it and it just sitting there yeah. was practical that totally counts yeah uh, and the cinematographer was bill pope and uh, I, I i made some i recognize that name uh, i did some checking stuart dryberg play, uh, was the cinematographer for one greg gardiner for two bill pope for three mm-hmm. he of the matrix matrix reloaded and revolution spider-man wow. two wild wild west <laughs> Spider-Man 3, Scott Pilgrim, we've talked about him before on our Matrix show, Uh, The World's End, The Jungle Book, the new one, Baby Driver, and The Kid Who Would Be King, which I can't wait for you to see. Mm -hmm. Bill Pope knows how to shoot a movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if he's worked a lot with Edgar Wright, Mm. that speaks highly of his abilities. But weirdly, all three of these movies are directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, and none of them really feel the same. They don't, that's true. I would say there's probably more in common between one and three Mm -hmm. than there is between one and two or two and three. Yeah. But three does still feel like a very different animal to one. Yeah. Uh, In terms of, uh, I was looking at it more in terms of genre and approach to the various splintered subgenres at play here. The first one's a buddy cop sci-fi action comedy. Mm-hmm. The second one is a straight-out comedy. There's nothing else going on. It has sci-fi elements, mm-hmm. but it, all it is is a comedy and a muckabout, and it's desperately unfunny, which means yes. it fails, and it's one intended task. Absolutely, absolutely. There's, there's, they don't attempt drama, and thus they don't fail at drama. Yeah, this is true. Uh, whereas this one was a straight sci-fi adventure drama with some comedy. They weren't trying to make you laugh as much, notably, than they definitely were in two. Yeah. And it seemed like there was more going on under the hood than there was in one, which, although it's dealing with great big things and big symbolic scenarios, this one was much more of a sort of a personal tale where people felt pain inside and didn't really talk about it. It was. And I think also where you can draw the distinct line between the vibe that they were going for is in the villains. Egger Egger. is hilarious. Mm -hmm. He is threatening in a vague sort of way, but he is designed to be funny Uh. and to be ridiculous. He's a giant cockroach. Though he is also kind of threatening at times. He is. No, that's what I'm saying. He, when a, are... a sideline character is stuck with him on their own, it's yeah. like, oh, he's just going to kill him. There are threatening elements to him, mm. but he is... Especially like... the, go for my break, and then you just see a guy, like, snapped in half and bent backwards. Exactly. Now, Boris is funny almost by accident because he's Jermaine Clement, mm-hmm. but he's terrifying. Yeah. You could put him in an absolutely straight sci-fi with no comedic elements and he would still fit. Yeah, I suppose so. He could fit in a Marvel. 
yeah. most definitely. I'm sorry to keep evoking Marvel, but this and Men in Black ran the gamut, and by 2012, it was at the point where Marvel were about to own the world, absolutely, and they themselves had to change. So they went away for seven more years to return with something I'm guessing kind of marvelly. Mm very deliberately choosing Thor and his female counterpart from uh, Ragnarok, that wasn't accidental. No. Yeah. No. And if you squint a little bit, you can kind of go, could these exist in the same world? Hmm. Could this be what they went and did after that? Anyway, so the plot of this one is uh, time travel and Josh Brolin. Yes. Because you can't get away these days from time travel and Josh Brolin. You can't do time travel without Josh Brolin and vice versa. Yeah. The animal breaks out of his moon jail and goes back into the past into 1969, kills Agent K when he was younger, and that creates a divergent timeline uh, where uh, K died in 1969 and... Uh, things are different and Jay realises that this is what has happened and goes back to prevent it happening. It's back to the future three. He pretty much walks over Kay's grave and decides, you know, I'm going back to 1969, I'm bringing you home. Mm-hmm. Only it's saving you there so that you will be home when I get home. Yes. There is, however, no explanation as to why Jay remembers and no one else does. Yes, there is. There is? Yes. Yeah? When I was trying, he... I was pummeling my brains. Yeah. Does he... When he meets Griffith... Yeah. He tells Griffiths what's going what's going on okay. and why he's come back. No, it's not Griffith at all, sorry. It's Jeffrey, the guy who gives him the equipment in the first place. Okay. The last thing he says to him before he jumps is, oh, wait, hang on a minute. You, you know this timeline is all messed up. Really, this is a conversation they should have had a long time ago on the ground, yeah. but then it might accidentally have got dramatic. Okay. And at this point, they're still not doing that. So he says They hold to him, the drama for the last act and good it's... Good God, do they? And it's... It comes it's out of nowhere. Great, but it's like, where was that for the last <laughs> three hour movies? and a half? <laughs> yeah, so Jeffrey says to him, wait a minute, hang on, you re- you know that this is a divergent timeline, uh-huh. you know that it's wrong. And That's Jay not an says, explanation. No, 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 Jay says, yeah, why? Why is that weird? And he says, that means you were there. And then he jumps, and there is no explanation for why that is. You find out. My thought was, oh, it's going to turn out to be one of those loop things where he always went back in time, and therefore he was always there. But then when you get to the very end of the movie, yeah, he was there. Okay, I'm still still waiting on the explanation. The point where the timelines diverged, Mm -hmm. Jay was present. We need Jesse. Jesse! Yeah. (laughs) Jay, as a child is present when the timelines diverge. And that means that he has a connection to the original timeline. It's ridiculously complicated. It either needs to be less complicated or it needs more explanation than they give it. I even have this in my notes. This timeline mechanic is ridiculously unnecessarily complicated. I was waiting for Basil Exposition to look directly into the screen and say, probably shouldn't think too deeply on this one. Yeah. But and that's why, because Jay, as a kid, was there, okay. that's why he can remember the original timeline. Right. I will say now, I wasn't expecting to like this one all that much. I was just hoping that it would be better than two, and I figured it had to be better than two. Absolutely. And I recall I seeing, having seen it and not being absolutely disgusted, which puts it above two. It does. Which is one of the worst films I've ever seen in terms of what what they had available to them and what they didn't achieve. You know what I said before about mm. when there's a drop-off that hard? Usually yeah. it's because they've gone, the second one's gone straight to video and no one's returned for it 
except maybe one guy, mm. like Teen Wolf 2 or something. Uh, and they're just doing the same thing again, which is what they did here. Mm. But here, it's everyone comes back, including the director and all the stars. And yeah. they're just doing it again. Mm. And they, but, they're undoing the third act of the, or the, thir- the last part of the first film. Yeah, I mean, but for me, bearing in mind that I'd not seen this before... I didn't realise initially that this was made in 2012. I assumed 2000. it was maybe 2005, maybe yeah. six. So this was why it took me so long to figure out who Boris was. Because I was like, well, it looks like Jermaine Clement, but it can't be because it's 2006 and Jermaine Clement wasn't working at this point. <laughs> um, but, it, but it does seem like such an incredibly long time, five years and then ten it's, years. It's an awfully that's long a, time That's between. weird for a trilogy. And then bearing in mind that we're now at less than that between three and international. Mm. When you break away from the trilogy, usually it's either straight away or after a long, long, That's long right. Time. So I've been thinking of uh, Men in Black International as mm. like one of these Lego sequels where they come back years and years later. But it's not, really. It's not that long. It's not dissimilar to the way that Alien 3 rounded out the Alien series mm. and then Alien Resurrection came back for some more. Absolutely. After only about Alien five 4? years. Question mark? No, Joss, take it away. Don't blame Joss on that. <laughs> Fair point. Anyway, so even the side swipe at the end notwithstanding, mm-hmm. there was more to recommend this in the first like two-thirds of the movie mm-hmm. than two contains. Ever. Oh, yeah. So even just things like the casting. They minimise the worm, guys. They minimise the, the worm, The pug guys. is there purely as a, a, a giant portrait on Jay's wall. I'm like, yeah. who would have that fucking dog on their wall? Very bizarre. And then he turns up in an advertising poster later on in 1969 yeah. as well. But they, like, they, they really dialed back. That means they knew after watching yeah. two that the fucking dog is too much. But the And the worm guys, just like a little, eh, and there they are, and then it's like Absolutely. none. So the casting and the fact that I was actually engaged with the plot I still thought there was way too much zipping around and screaming screaming and I it almost feels like especially now I know that it was made in 2012 that the mechanic of the time travel whereby you have to jump off a tall building Mm -hmm. and the camera falls down with them like through dinosaur times and then back around again Mm. to wherever so that you can have it in 3D is so that you can have it in 3D and that is incredibly annoying but I was actually is that the one where Will Smith turns into a jib-jab as he's falling. Something like that. But I, <laughs> I was... It, it still, for me, even with all the positives, does not compare to the first one. Mm-hmm. But I was... 3,000 times more engaged than I was with 2. It picks up massively after 2, purely because 2 is digging a hole to China. Absolutely. As far as I'm concerned, 2 can be struck from Canada. But here's the thing. Except that then, why is K back working for the MIB? If you just watch 1 and then watch 3, it's like, hang on, I thought K left. Mm. And it's like, well, you've got to watch 2. Oh, no. No. No, you don't. Oh, no, no, no. Just say, uh, he came back and just wave your hand. Yes. Like a Jedi. Just, he came back. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, speaking of crossover, Emma Thompson plays O, Zed's replacement, and she's an international. So it's kind of like, it's the way that Judy Dench was M with Pierce Brosnan and then M with Daniel Craig. Indeed. Uh, it's also worth noting that, because we haven't mentioned him at all before, Danny Elfman was still on scoring detail. He did all three of these movies. He's also returned, accompanied by Chris Bacon, for International. So he's really the Men in Black go-to. He's kept the sound consistent, mm-hmm. so the films feel more consistent than maybe the directorial style, cinematography, uh, gen- genre approach, focus, and... Uh, 
I suppose pacing mm. would uh, because they're they're incoherent otherwise. They are. They are so just three different animals. And that that baffles me a little bit about Barry Sonnenfeld because one feels like the Adams family to me. It feels like the Adams family and Adams family values. Mm. And two is a mess. And three feels like a Marvel sort of. Yeah. Two feels like Wild Wild West only cheaper. Yeah. Will Smith seems tired. He does. He seems tired of playing Jay. He keeps saying, I'm too old for this shit. And it's like, if you're too old, Tommy Lee Jones shouldn't be here at all. And Jones looks puffy and immobile, tired, bored, distracted, annoyed. Mm. And checks out as soon as he possibly can. Like, I'll I'll be here as a a brief cameo, practically, as Kay. And he's there in spirit, Mm. but he's not really there. Mm. And that's kind of good. If two is to be judged... Tommy Lee Jones having checked out is not someone you want on camera. Mm, yeah. At, whereas Josh Brolin picks up the slack and is really engaging. He is. He is. Brolin is really good. And honestly, although I kind of creased my face up a little bit, uh, Alice Eve as the young O, mm. the young Emma Thompson, she, is not half bad. She was Carol Marcus, uh, the medical specialist in Star Trek Into Darkness, daughter of Peter Weller's Admiral. And in this, she plays a young Emma Thompson. And since Alice Eve was 30 years old when she filmed Men in Black 3, that means that Emma Thompson's character is a sprightly 80-year-old in Men in Black International. As always, Emma Thompson is looking great in Men in Black 3 and plays the role with a lot of take-charge, no-nonsense, Nanny McPhee by way of Mary Poppins, Dignity. Uh, there's also a new fourth writer, if you consider that the uh, uh, the first film was written by Ed Solomon. The second was written by Robert Gordon and Barry Finaro. This third one's written by Eton Cohen. And the fifth and sixth writers on International are Matt Holloway and Art Marcus. So they've not been able to retain one writer across four films. That's possibly why the tone's different each time. Mm. Wow. Yeah, but if you look at uh, Eton Cohen's writing career, uh, he wrote Idiocracy, which is pretty amusing. Tropic Thunder, also pretty good. Madagascar Escape to Africa. Mm. Men in Black 3. Get Hard, which I haven't seen, but it's the one where Will Ferrell goes to prison and convinces Kevin Hart to help him not get raped. Splendid. By acting tough. Okay. Where, well, Kevin Hart's pretending that he's uh, been in the joint and is tough. And uh, he also wrote Holmes and Watson, one of the least funny comedies of all time that came out earlier this year. Another Will Ferrell thing. Feels like Will Ferrell and him don't mix. They only make bad films that way. Well, considering that he also directed Get Hard and Holmes and Watson and got a raspberry for worst director for Holmes and Watson. Eton Cohen's finest hour, it would appear, would be uh, writing writing the ending of Men in Black 3. And there's some good gags in Tropic Thunder. Also, he wrote for some Beavis and Butthead and some King of the Hill and some American Dad. Uh, There's a bit too much uh, humour that they think is challenging the idea of racism, Mm. but actually just comes off as uncomfortable. They meet a uh, Chinese uh, man who works in a Chinese restaurant named Wu. Now, this is by far and away the worst, most uncomfortable scene in Men in Black 3. It really belongs in Men in Black 2, and it's not representative of the rest of the film. But let me just take you through some of these bits. Okay, Jay, so happy to see you. Uh, Mr. Wu get you your regular table. Okay, strike one. The me so solly routine should never be heard beyond the 1960s. It was dumb as shit then, but luckily everyone was ignorant as fuck. You not hungry? Sure, so thanks, Wu. Oh, sure, sure. You look 
Billy Flesh. Show us the tanks in the back. Uh, so sorry, no speaking English. You come back later, okay? Save the chopsaki bullshit for the tourists, Wu. And then there's a flip for the character of Wu, which makes it feel like they're going to humanize him some more. Hey, what do you guys want to bust my balls for, huh? You don't have no balls, Wu. It's a figure of speech, obviously. Taking this literally places a premium on having testicles. That is an earth fish, very traditional in China. You arrest me, that's a hate crime. This is making light of the concept of hate crime. Dicey. It would be if you were Chinese. So the concept of hate crime only applies to humans of specific races. Do you see why this is dangerous territory to go into for jokes and yucks? It suggests that there is no kind of protection for aliens against what is effectively police brutality in this. Agent K now humiliates Wu by pulling off his robe to reveal his alien body. K, come on, I got larvae to feed. Who's the spiky ball before Wu? Nobody. Who's it for? I keep them just in case. I don't know anybody. And while this is a callback, obviously, to the disrobing of Mikey at the beginning of Men in Black 1, and the strong-arming of Jeebs who gets shot in the head in the first Men in Black to reveal his alien origin, and then repeatedly in Men in Black 2, it kind of feels like after 15 years, you might have wanted to just ease back on this stuff. Start making the Men in Black a bit more community-focused and less... the salty best scene I can compare this to in terms of how to do it right is the Mr. Mime scene in Detective Pikachu. Major differences being Pikachu and Tim are not government agents. They're on their own personal trail. They have no real responsibility to a greater cause, whereas the men in black have an astonishing level of responsibility, which it feels like they abuse sometimes, and that never gets questioned. And they don't harm Mr. Mime at all. In fact, Technically, they play his game. They give him the attention he wants. There's no weird feeling of racial discrimination or making light of racial discrimination. It just feels more engaged with a conscience. And then after this horrible treatment, poor Mr. Wu... He gets killed. And then proceeds to smack him around the face with the ingredients of one of his... Meals. Yeah, it's, it's, it's demeaning. There's this, there's this, the bit where the cops in 1969 pull Jay over because he's black and driving a nice car, so they think he stole yeah. it. The gag there is that Will Smith says, just because I'm driving in this car doesn't mean I stole it. Well, I did steal this one. And it's, yeah. it feels like that's not actually worth it for it, a gag. Well, it feels like it's not exactly what you would call... It ain't Jordan Peele. Oh, good God, no. And they're not they're not being particularly... Dude, Jordan Peele could write such a good Men in Black. He's so good at sci-fi. That would be great. Um, like you say, that it's not particularly challenging or anything like that, but it almost feels like they think that simply calling attention to something is enough to make it funny. Mm. And it really isn't. And they, they're not... They're... Uh, I can't think what the word is, but when you like take an old joke and put a twist on it, mm. their twist is not as twisty as they think it is. Mm. So, and it, it extends to other things as well. There's when he turns up in 1969. There's a a couple that he bumps into that 
Boris, sorry, bumps into, and the girl is a very obvious hippie, mm. and she holds a flower out to him and goes, "Make, Make love, love, not war," walk. which is what Stan Lee, do. which is what Stan Lee shouted in uh, uh, Avengers Endgame, which is a remake of Men in Black Three. Josh Brolin, right? So they, that's how you make that funny. <laughs> you got to get Stan get Lee, Stan Lee, which is harder say. these days. It is harder these days, but yeah. So it's it seems more the fact that there's this constant. There's also this the is bit funny if we just talk about it. The guy who sends him back in time says, you know, if you do get this wrong, you'll be stuck in 1969. Wasn't a great time for your people. Two. Mm. Well, That's the one letter bit, away from you people. The worst bit is that he then follows that up with, it's much better now, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it much better now? Isn't it much better now? Yeah, it's much better now. Cheers. Yep. I just feel bad for Will Smith sometimes. Yep. But, I mean, uh, it's still miles better than Wild Wild West. Yes. And the shit that they had to endure in that. They make up for a lot of these misjudged moments uh, with a character called Griffin, who is a time seer. And uh, they meet him in Andy Warhol's party. And Andy Warhol turns out to be an agent in disguise. And it's actually Bill Hader, who's way funny and actually would have been great the whole way through the movie. Mm -hmm. And they also have Will Arnett there who would have been great the whole way through the movie. You've got... That's two men in black you could have had running through the whole time. Well, both of the different time frames, but you see what I mean. Mm. It's the same as they had Patrick Warburton in the second one. That yeah. is a character you could use the whole way through. Mm. Like, create a character around him, use Patrick Warburton to his best. People will love that. That way you're giving people more than just Smith and Jones. You're not relying on the two of them as a as crutches for Absolutely. this thing. Absolutely. But no, you are completely right about Griffith. Basically, once he turns up, mm. the film makes a massive leap. It does. In terms of its quality, its emotional engagement. It's intelligence as well. Like it, They're asking Absolutely. the audience to grasp that there are many, many possible futures mm. and that this guy can see them all happening at once and it's enough to drive a person crazy. Yeah. So he kind of has to focus on like the better ones Absolutely. and uh, just process it himself. I mean, that's the concept of the film could just have revolved around him mm. the whole well, way through. He was a, great. A lot of what makes this final third of the movie work is his performance and his delivery mm. are frigging heartbreaking. He's going for He's dramatic so rather fragile. than funny. And you can see how tormented knowing all of these futures makes him on the one hand and yet how determined he is to pick out those positives and emphasize them and mm. when he does get to share what he can see with people he tries to show them good things even when he can't he shows them things that are going to be meaningful to mm. them and it just oh the actor's name is Michael Stuhlbarg and his character effectively represents the polar opposite of Men in Black 2 yes because he's it requires you to think it's subtle and it's measured mm. It's not going for this great big showy effect. It's it's more just kind of, oh, hey, think about it like this, which is really what Men in Black could have been all along. Mm. He was also in Arrival and Doctor Strange, so I think that might be He gravitates be his, towards cerebral <laughs> uh, um, sci-fi fantasy. Yeah, so it would appear. And the, honestly, the, the complex concepts he deals in, like looking at a baseball game and talking about the myriad possibilities that were required to fall into place for the Mets to win this... World Series and all of these things that had to happen it's kind of beautiful on a quantum level mm. that what he's talking about which I did not expect to be blindsided by Men in Black 3 in that yeah. way I, the, when he says uh, he has a line where 
I can't remember what Jay says to him exactly, but it's about the fact that he can see all of these things. It, or it must be good to be able to do this. Mm. And his response is, it's a gigantic pain in the ass, but it has its moments. And just the way he says it, oh, it hurts. Because it's effectively, it's one of the threads of being a god. If you can see all possible futures, you are omniscient. You know everything. You know not only everything that is going to happen, but everything that could happen. But you can't do anything about it and you can't influence it. And that must be horrible. So this is how you see things. This is amazing. It's a gigantic pain in the ass, but it has its moments. Wait, this game doesn't happen till October. Oh, it's always October and November and March. So many futures and they're all real. Just don't know which one will coalesce. Until then, they're all happening. Like this one, it's my favorite moment in human history. All the things that had to converge for the Mets to win the World Series, they were in last place every single season until they won it all. You said you had a gift for it. That baseball, for instance, thrown for the last out of Game 5, manufactured in 1962 by the Spalding factory of Chicopee, Massachusetts, was aerodynamically flawed due to the horsehide being improperly tanned because Sheila, the tanner's wife, left him for a Puerto Rican golf pro that Sunday. Do, um, the gift? See, yeah. Oh, 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 yes, of course, in the box. Uh, it's the surprise. To protect the Earth, it's the shield. Shield. Arcanan Arknet. That's what you did. You put up the Arknet. How did I do that? When that ball is pitched to Davy Johnson, who only became a baseball player because his father couldn't find a football to give him for his eighth birthday, it hits his bat two micrometers too high, causing him to pop out to Cleon Jones, who would have been born Clara. A statistical typist, if his parents didn't have an extra glass of wine that night before going to bed. A miracle is what seems impossible, but happens anyway. There is one moment where they do drop the thread with Griffith, and I was like, oh, no, you were doing so well. Yeah. And it's when they're at the baseball game, and they're really just getting to the peak of that emotional moment. <laughs> and then Boris turns up on a bike and grabs him and drives off with him, and it's like, ah, no. Yeah. And uh, there's a, a whole thing with the uh, uh, moon launch and Ryan Gosling obviously inside this um, uh, space capsule waiting <laughs> to get to the moon to be in the best film ever made. Of course. But yeah, they're, they're trying to uh, put some MacGuffin on top of the, uh, the spacecraft to protect the Earth from an imminent alien invasion. <laughs> Agent J, or James Darrell Edwards III, in his adventure through time with the younger version of his partner, whose full name is Kevin Brown, so technically he's Agent Brown, eventually leads them to cross paths with TV's Luke Cage, Mike Coulter, as a military colonel, James Darrell Edwards Jr., Jay's father, a man Jay never really knew. And as soon as you find this out, the father who's been shown that this is his son dies saving the day, leaving the young Agent K to talk the very young five-year-old Jay through the passing of his father. Edwards dies a little unwitnessed death, protecting K, who has a far greater duty, saving the world a dozen times over by proxy and at the same time handing over the reins of 
protection for his son, which puts an unexpected weight on their relationship. It gives retroactive gravity to every instance of kid or bub or tiger or slick or slugger. It imbues the Men in Black series with the spirit of two men, one who we barely know, just like Jay and who dies a hero, and the other an avuncular, crabby old cowboy of an agent who has to live aware of the price paid for his life and elects to repay that by watching over this boy until he's ready to walk the path himself. It's the kind of narrative blindsiding that I find truly pleasing, especially about time travel movies. Because if those stories are powered by regret and love, then ultimately the time travel mechanics don't really matter. None of the sci-fi really matters. It's about the humans at the core. Again, this is part of what makes it feel like a Marvel, I think, because mm. Marvel, we know, Are very good they have done this, going, oh, right? Hey, Things what if we do this? that give new scope. scope to earlier stuff. Yeah. And, and it's heart, heartaching. And when Jay comes back and, and, and says a, sort of a, a gruff thank you to uh, Kay, it's not the end of things, but it was symbolically uh, the, you know, the stepping down of, of really of both of them from, yeah. from doing this. I'm honestly, I feel like you know, if Men in Black International does well, Will Smith will probably come back and do something to do with that later on as a senior agent. Yeah. Uh, because it was, it was the film that really made him, along with Independence Day yeah. and with some uh, extra push from Bad Boys. If the first Men in Black film had been as bad as, say, Wild Wild West or Men in Black 2, it feels like he would have stalled and needed some time to limber up to something more impressive. He'd have needed to do at least one more decent Men in Black to firmly establish himself as a family entertainer, as well as, with things like Six Degrees of Separation and Ali, a fantastic dramatic actor. For comparison, Ryan Reynolds' first outing as this kind of thing was Green Lantern. It's taken him until Detective Pikachu to be able to get back in the family blockbuster sector. Deadpool being his bad boys, definitely maybe being his Hitch. Of course, definitely maybe made $55 million and Hitch made $368 million, but maybe definitely maybe would have made more if Green Lantern had come beforehand and been as good as Men in Black 1. The whole time travel thing has been initiated because... Boris goes back in time to get his younger self to kill Kay. Yeah. Rather than allow himself to be arrested. And it struck me when they're having their conversation. And it's very funny because it's Jermaine Clement talking to himself. Yeah. But it kind of hit me. This is the issue with all of those memes about what would I say to my past self? And mm -hmm. if I could say something to 16-year-old me, what would I tell them? What advice would I give? advice you give your 16 year old self they're not gonna listen to you <laughs> they think they're immortal we've barely mentioned josh brolin's performance in this film he really does give it some an extra zing of energy that uh, it definitely needed because jones was not going to be capable of bringing it the same way he was in 97 he rightfully steps back and lets brolin give a fresh spin on Kay. he seems kind of naive and like this straight up country boy he's efficient but he's not seen it all yet. And 
there has been some thought put into what K might have actually been like. He's definitely a charming on-screen presence and rakishly handsome, and he pitches the Tommy Lee Jones impression just right so that you still feel like he's playing the character rather than just delivering a younger, tighter copy. Frankly, if the end effect is I could have done with some more of young K, that's definitely a good thing. And it's the polar opposite of Men in Black 2, which I think is summed up in the Bullchinians gag, which is literally exactly what it sounds like. Also, the twist about the father gives scope to Jay's life and all of that bitterness and resentment that he's sitting on in Men in Black 2, that he keeps saving the world and no one knows who he is, and the fact that that goes nowhere in that film, finally kind of pays off here because someone always knew who he was. Just time to say a big thank you to our top tier patrons, Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Tyler Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolf, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lux, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Cheshire. And as a quick reminder, our Discord server is now open and very busy with chatter from listeners. You can join in with that right now. Just go to our Twitter to get the link. And July is commission season, so get in contact if you want a show doing. We will negotiate it for the standard $150 fee, and it's got to be a movie this time around. We will do four and four only. Did we talk on the phone last night? You hung up on me. Yeah, I did. But that was because of all of those secrets the universe doesn't know about. But I realized that last night was a long, long time ago. And really, I just want to say thank you. It's been my privilege. So yeah, I think ultimately I had not expected it to be able to pull its ass back out of the fire in quite such style after two. I thought it was going to be dismal and forgettable again, just, you know, maybe better looking. Mm. But uh, it, this has had some thought put into it. It's, I think in terms of actual stuff below the hood, three's better than one. In terms of efficiency as a film, one's better than three. But both of them together are a neat pair. They are, yeah. And honestly... If you throw two in the bin. You could have... You could eliminate two entirely by having the reason that Jay has to go back and find Kay mm. and deneuralize him because Boris has escaped and gone back in time and undone what he's done. Honestly, uh, I, I feel like you could still have done three without Kay being an agent. Think about it. You don't need him at the You beginning. don't need him at the beginning, really. He's just like, just have Jay be who he is. Mm. Have him kind of like having befriended Kay anyway. Yeah. 
that Kay doesn't actually uh, know that Jay works for uh, that Kevin doesn't ah, know that Jay works. so he's just I a mailman yeah. and th- that way you can still have Kay as an agent back in the in the past but basically oh and then if you have like a, a that ending conversation yeah. between the two of them they're what, just getting pie then it's a mirror of young Kay Josh Brolin supporting neuralized James and now it's Jay supporting neuralized Kevin. Oh high five, we fixed your series for you. Checks in the mail, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) That would I mean, okay, right. What we're gonna do here, we are going to activate our own neuralizer and forget Men in Black 2. Okay, you ready? Yep. Okay, look into the little red dot on the microphone. Turns out there are only three Men in Black films now. Men in Black 1, Men in Black 3, and Men potentially in- Men in Black International. <laughs> we don't know if it'll suck. It's not going to suck. Let's hope not. Yeah. It might not be fantastic, but it's got Hemsworth and Thompson It can't in it. possibly be as bad as two. It's got Thompson and Thompson in it. That's something. That on its own is something. Thompson, the Thompson twins, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, on that basis, I'll just buy it on Blu-ray and watch it with the sound off if the script is awful. Okay. Beats just watching the trailer on a loop. Mm, yeah. Okay. How'd you like me now? So we're going to finish on... Well, what are we going to finish on? Nod your head! No, no, because there's no such film. That doesn't exist. So we're going to finish, I suppose, on the original Men in Black song by uh, Will Smith. Okay. Because the alternative is uh, Loverboy with dubstep attached. No. That was the weird, weird remix in the uh, yeah. in Men in Black Three. I mean, that that is. <laughs> I, I described it as like putting vinegar in your milkshake. These are these are two flavors that go really well, not, Just not together. Not with each other, no. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's, school's out. in black remember that just in case we ever face to face and make contact the title held by me mib means what you think you saw you did not see so don't blink be what was dead is now going black suit with the black ray bands on walk a shadow move the silence guard against extraterrestrial violence but yo we ain't on no government list we straight don't exist no names and no fingerprints saw something strange watch your back cause you never quite know where the mibs is at uh and Tonight. 
on the horizon, bright light into sight tight. Camera zoom on the impending doom. But then, like boom, black suits fill the room up with the quickness. Talk with the witnesses, hypnotizer, normalizer, vivid memories turn to fantasies. Ain't no one my bees, can I please? Do what we say, that's the way we kick it. Yeah, I mean, let's see the noisy cricket get wicked on you. With your first, last, and only line of defense against the worst scum of the universe. So don't fear us, cheer us. If you ever get near us, don't jeer us. We're fearless, some my bees freezing up all the flag. What that stand for? Men in black, uh, and. Your own protection, cause we see things that you need not see, and we be places that you need not be. So go with your life, forget the Roswell crap. Show love to the black suit, cause that's the men in, that's the men in. Thank you. 